0: Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Creating habits and grooves in your lifestyle that are conducive to comfort is playing the dangerous game of mediocrity. This week's guest, Alan Stein Jr., believes this is why sport has been so critical in the development of so many high performers outside the realm of physical competition. However, not everyone has that athletic background to draw upon resilience, failure, struggle, and eventually victory. This is where his skills as a performance coach, once for the best basketball players in the world, bridge the gap for the ambitious, business-minded competitor. In this episode, John, Luke, and Tex talk about current and long-gone basketball and football coaches of note. And if you're part of what I would refer to as the Jerky Boys generation, you will enjoy a solid 10 to 15 minutes of uh, secondhand impressions and sentimental reminiscence of the Adam Sandler CD series. That conversation has been strategically placed at the end of this episode for your listening pleasure. And here it is, your weekly Austin weather report, episode 315.
1: More nation. What's happening? This is Luke. Tex. Jean Wellborn. Eh? <laughs> Luke and Tex are the co hosts of this show. We have a featured guest today, John Wellborn, but he's not the special guest. More on that individual later. Or should we just say it now or later? Later. Well, you're listening to the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing. 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 Keep those. How I think radio reviews is coming. Oh,
2: we just had one hell of a review drop. Text. do you remember what it was all about? Oh, yeah. Well, he leads off with how this podcast is an amazing Austin weather update for him.
3: Other than that, he lives. other than that, Hot garbage, garbage. actually read, it is, garbage.
2: Actually read it is the exact
3: opposite, that these guys are awful. Uh, except giving, for the weather guy. Except for the <laughs> 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 This weather is driving me crazy. And then he totally you, then he totally flips the script and talks about how, you know, uh, how amazing we are, the tangents I go off on, how we make fun of text, which I don't think we really do. Burn band's on for this episode, people, except
1: for when it turns off. And then it gets on spicy. Luke. On
3: Luke. It, it is a little hot out there. Burn band is definitely on, on. or off. No, because when well, it's off, it... we can burn.
1: Okay, yeah. So it's on right now, but eventually you'll know when. Well, we we'll it to get turned to get, well, off.
3: I can't wait till the burn ban comes off so I can burn Spanton's kid's uh, uh, jungle gym that he ah, yes. threw up there in our fire ring.
1: Yes, we have things to burn, literally, not figuratively. But ladies and gentlemen, before we get into the hotness that sizzles up to an eventual text burn session, <laughs> 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 uh, love you, man. Um, Hey, guess what December is all about the first weekend de- in December. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. the Power Athlete Symposium. Mm,
3: 2019.
1: Mm, 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 2019 teen, teen, teen. It's happening here in Austin ten, 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 te-
3: Texas <laughs> Texas. Wait, so Boston, Massachusetts or Austin, Massachusetts.
1: Uh, what is the line there? do remember? Yeah, in, Dumb and Dumber, uh, right? No, it wasn't no. Road Trip. It was, road trip. Oh, it was road trip. <laughs> like, Austin. Austin, <laughs>
3: Uh Tom Green. That was a great movie.
1: Austin, Texas here, home of Power Athlete HQ. Uh, we are sorting out all of the details. You should start to see a little bit about venue, everything like that. Hey, listen, we're bringing in A-plus talent. So it takes a while to convince these people of, number one, who we are, and number two, why we're worthy of their time. Right. I mean, if we're going to get the rock there, we're going to have to figure it out somehow. And it's a lot of begging, a lot of pleading, a lot of tweeting. You know what I'm saying? Write that down. <laughs> if you are interested in, <laughs> if you're interested in the power athlete, symposium, which you are events, the power will get you there. You want to get right there slash symposium. That's where all the details are going to be. People, um, Do it now and do it fast. Tickets are going to go fast. And you want to be here and you want to experience it. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. You are not wrong. That's right. Okay. Barreling forward. Anything else you want to say? No. Ladies and gentlemen, on our show today, we have Alan Stein Jr., author of Raise Your Game. Renowned coach. Guy super accomplished. Great taste in movies. Um, I think got a good chuckle or two out of the burns uh, in this episode, and uh, you know, didn't deliver any burns, so that if no, we... He, he's did a, he chop us, or no? No,
3: no uh, you know, some some real highbrow stuff, which, you know, is obviously above you guys, but he... Uh, I, I heard him uh, present at the um, IYCA event in Detroit, and he did great. I mean, he got up there and uh, uh, you know talked about not only the stories and his involvement in basketball, but really hit on some old-fashioned Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, just some things that, like, that all humans should know and do. Connection. Yeah, and, uh, Connection uh, yeah. and uh, I really enjoyed his talk. And then I got a chance to to speak, and he was actually really complimenting me, which I thought was funny. Uh, but then provided me his book, uh, which we went through, and I know text has been
2: pouring over, so yeah, I'm I, stoked to have him on. His, his writing style, and you'll hear it in his, his podcast interview, because he uses stories, experiences to deliver his points. So he picks specific experiences from high-level performers, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, or their coaches even, and then paints the picture of how to apply it. So it's amazing book. I really enjoyed it. And then you'll see how it plays out in this interview. Well, let's, let's just keep talking and delay the interview. Oh, well, well we do for the first 20 minutes. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen,
1: here we go. Alan Stein Jr., let's do it. Go. Well, Alan, besides having great, clearly great taste in movies and comedy uh, with the past 20 minutes or five, 10. um, Well, at least you didn't talk about the weather for 45 minutes. Well, that's what we do afterwards Ah. once the guest. So the guest doesn't have to to listen to the weather. Sit to a 15 minute
4: weather report. Is the Austin weather pretty perfect right now? Oh uh, yeah, it's already cool. super hot. Thanks for asking, Alan. You
2: know, I'd
1: say it's about a uh, seventy-eight degrees. Humidity's a little high to my liking. Yeah, yeah. Uh partly it's cloudy. A storm, yeah, partly cloudy. Winds are about 10, 15 mile an hour <laughs> gusts uh, out of the southeast. <laughs> uh, that would be a. So that's actually not, that's not how it's going. Uh, There's uh, no way it's coming <laughs> from
3: <the> southeast. <laughs> so the backstory is we uh, Luke uh, started doing the weather report to try to just I don't know upset people. Cool. and then and then we started getting like reviews and being like, God, if they just stop talking about the fucking weather.
1: It well it came down to our producer Callie, who is like, guys, the weather thing just has gotta go. It's like Drop good it. f-
2: Yeah, don't and, like tell us not to do anything.
3: Because yeah. we're gonna do it. It's like, oh okay, well it's just gonna last for a year well, now, Well The problem is is like you guys can really like like the whole like um on our text thread where people are just liking messages that people like. I was like
2: uh, I'm like, why does it keep saying so and so like this? I'm just like uh some of us have Androids, but We just got an iTunes review that said best wet Austin weather report. Yep. Five star review (laughs) on our our podcast. There you you go. Seriously.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Was that you? No. no. Hubert okay. Cumbertoff. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, foolish antics, I guess, uh. are at the radio. So, but, Alan, uh, in all seriousness, man, I mean, I, you know, we got, we got your backstory, but you can tell it much better than we can, much more eloquently than we can. So uh, in case our listeners may not know who you are or how you got here, why don't you give the long form of, of your background?
4: Sure, the long form would be uh, that that basketball was my first identifiable passion. I fell in love with the game at probably four or five years old, and here four decades later, it's still a major staple of my life. And uh, I was always an incredibly high-energy kid, so I I played every sport under the sun. Uh, not only your conventional sports of of you know hoops and baseball and football and soccer, but I did BMX biking, I did skateboarding, did martial arts. So anything that involved movement and burning energy, I was into. But I always came back to basketball. That was my first love and was fortunate enough to play. You know, was a pretty good high school player, got to play in college. I played down uh, at Elon University down in North Carolina. Uh, and while I was in college, I started to to develop an equal affinity for the strength and conditioning side, the performance side you know, like every single six foot white guy that played basketball, my goal was to be able to dunk. So, you know, wanting to improve athleticism and jump higher and, you know, I had the strength shoes and I was reading muscle and fitness religiously, anything that I thought could give me an edge on a training standpoint, I was devouring. Uh, And then certainly over time, uh, found some better uh, resources and uh, knew that I wanted to make my living in the game. And since I had developed this equal love for performance, just decided that being a basketball strength and conditioning coach or a basketball performance coach made the most sense because it combined the two things I was most passionate about. And I did that for almost 20 years, uh, specialized mostly at the youth and high school age, uh, but was very fortunate to work at two high schools here in the Washington DC area uh, that have, I don't know, we have got like 12 to 15 guys in the NBA right now that all played while I was at those schools as the strength coach uh, like Kevin Durant and Victor Oladipo and uh, yeah just had an absolute blast learning and being able to work with great players and great coaches. Um, being able to work at those two high schools got me some gigs with Nike and with Jordan Brand and with USA basketball. Uh, so I was able to be a fly on the wall and watch the best players and coaches in the world do what they did during the unseen hours and uh, just yeah, had an absolute blast living my dream of of training and being in the basketball space and learning. And then a few years ago, decided that I was ready for a new challenge and wanted to take everything that I had learned through the game and figure out how to apply that to business uh, and to life and to parenting and everything else I had going on. Uh, and and made the leap over to the corporate side uh, now as a keynote speaker and an author and and trainer. So, uh, but basketball still a a driving force in and what I do and where I got my philosophy from and I'm having an absolute blast. And it's allowed me to do some cool things, speak at a lot of events and travel the world uh, and come in contact with folks like John. So it's uh, a neat how everything comes full circle.
1: Nice. And so I guess he was, you were at the IYCA clinic with John? Yeah. yeah. Yep, nice, nice. I know a couple of our guys were there. They're, they're gonna be stoked that you're on the show.
4: Oh, cool. Yeah, Yeah, it was a great event. Uh, Our mutual friend Jim that kind of introduced us is a longtime friend and mentor. Um, Actually, in my last year then I was at Elon, this would have been 98, uh, Jim was holding one of his first strength and conditioning clinics up at University of Detroit Mercy. And I caught a flight, I hardly had any money as a college senior, but scraped enough together to take a flight up there and watch him put on a clinic. And that really cemented the fact that that was the avenue I wanted to take. I mean, I I saw Jim and what he was doing and working with athletes. and was like, that's exactly what I want to be doing. And although I never actually ended up working for a school full-time, I was always uh, an entrepreneur and ran my own private training business. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So uh, to come back and speak at that event almost 20 years after I met Jim uh, was really, really special because he's he's such a good dude. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Awesome, I had the opportunity to, John Hayden off the book, and I dove headfirst in, and so I want to present to the audience the concepts that you get into, player, team, and coach. So you have different layers and the opportunity to learn from these three perspectives, and it's almost as we grow up, we get the opportunity to go through all these three phases, whether we're uh, an athlete, coaching, or teaching younger players that we play with how to initiate the offense, And eventually as a a parent, a team, a leader in there. So where did the idea for, I guess, I don't know what you call this little triangle model that you've got going on, but where did this idea come from and how would you paint this picture audibly? I think that's a word. Audibly? It it is now. Audibly. (laughs) Audibly? There you go.
4: You know, I, I when I was looking at an organization, I realized that those were really the three components that any organization, whether it's a, a sports team or a business, you've got the organization as a whole, which we'll call the team, and then technically everyone that's a part of the organization is either going to be considered a coach or a player uh, or a a boss and an employee or, you know, however, whatever terminology you want to use. So that was the reason for picking those three pillars. And we weave in and out of those rather seamlessly throughout our lives. You know, one of the things I was uh, so uh, so drawn to when John was on stage being interviewed was, you know, his role as a father and, and how he approaches parenting. Because um, I'm I'm a father of three and, and you know, love being a father. Uh, but I realized that someone could technically, they could be a player uh, when they're at work But then they come home and they're kind of the coach of their family. So uh, and same thing with different roles in the community. So uh, the reason for writing it that way was I didn't want anyone to ever feel confined to one role that throughout life we're going to be weaving in and out of different roles. Uh, Even for the solopreneur, you're very rarely living in a solo, uh, a silo, excuse me. You still have a team. You're still a part of a team, even if they're uh, some some contracted workers or some assistants or whatever. It's very rare that anyone ever does anything in complete solitude. And if so, that's only in that one dynamic of your life. In other areas, you are a part of something bigger than yourself. So that was one of the main reasons for for wanting to organize the book that way and to be able to view it from from different vantage points. Uh, I do think there are skill sets and themes that cross all boundaries, but then there are certain traits that are really important to have as a player. And there are certain traits that are really important to have as a coach. And then for any team to be successful, uh, then you need to make sure that you have those traits as well. So um, I'm, I'm a guy that believes in the basics. I'm I'm a very simple guy. You know, I, I live my life on a, Uh, by a handful of of very basic principles, um, which I prefer, I don't say that to diminish myself, I'm not a dummy, uh, but that's just the way that I prefer it. So I love very simple, direct language and very simple and direct concepts. And that was about as basic as I I felt I could make it.
1: But that even tends to be the challenge to distill it down to that level, right? Um, Interesting model in the sense that, man, for years, John, I feel like that's how we operated depending on the initiative that would come up from saying like, yeah, let's do it to, you know, it's like, Hey, okay. So we're going into this route. So you're the chief here I'm the fucking Indian. Like, and we, we've managed just out of a mutual respect out of the guys in the room. Like we would just kind of fluidly go through that, like in real time and you work with each other long enough to just know when it's like you shift order. You know
3: yeah but I'll, I mean also it um, I always think that the highest form of intelligence is when you can make things very simple for people, like everybody always thinks that like oh, the more complicated something is, uh, you know obviously the more you know intelligent I actually believe it 's the exact opposite it 's the smartest people that can make like the most big concepts appear to be the most basic, simple stuff, uh, you know when we talk about. Uh, You know, and uh, like think about like strength, like strength and training. And like we were at Sore Nexus deal this last weekend and um, I had people ask me some really, really intricate, like very complex things. Like I had a guy ask me, you know, can you compare and contrast block periodization versus undulating periodization and like went into this deep dive and I'm like you haven't been doing this that long, have you? And he's like, no, I'm relatively new. And I was like, as you get more in- involved into this and you start training more athletes and working and doing this, you'll realize that, like, the concepts that you're discussing, there's a lot more basics. And I kind of hit him with that. And I was like, man, it's just this kind of natural ebb and flow. But the ability to teach things at a very basic level is, I think, the highest form of, like, you know, not only self-reflection but education for it.
4: Absolutely, I agree. And And the basics of anything, whether we're talking about how to get – really, really strong or how to improve free throw shooting or how to improve culture at work. It's, it's those basics and the, and the basics always work. Uh, That's the part I think sometimes a lot of people fall victim to, especially in today's day and age where uh, the shiny object syndromes uh, exacerbated completely because of social media. And we're all have all of these distractions all of the time, but the basics work. I mean, you know, if, if you want to get strong, move heavyweight, you know, with some intensity and, and get some rest and then come back and do it again. And if you do that enough times, you're going to get strong. And same thing for uh, really improving any skill. And that's not to say that, that those things are easy to do. Uh, that's one of the, the the light bulb moments I had was uh, understanding the difference between basic and easy. You know, what it takes to get really, really strong is basic on a, on a theoretical level, but obviously is not easy to do. I mean, the the workouts themselves can be grueling and it's it's a lot of hard work but the, but being able to separate those two and not things make things more complicated. Uh, but I, I felt, to the guy that asked you that question, I mean, I was the same way when I was younger. It was more out of an insecurity of I wanted to sound smart and try to impress people, so I would make things way more complicated, probably to the point I didn't even understand what I was saying just so I could appear smart. And then as I got older, I realized that the best people in the business uh, did what you just did, which was break it down and make it super simple.
3: Uh, something I enjoyed about your talk was uh you gave a story talking about basics and Kevin Durant and um you know that the, the best in the world do the basics uh you know as a as a hobby or I mean not as a hobby but as a like like a religious practice. And was it uh I thought it was Kevin Durant or the, you referenced another basketball player in your talk. Kobe was the one yeah, that taught me about the
4: basics. Yeah, yeah
3: I, I was Kevin's hoping you could a lot of things as well. You could relive that story for us, but also um I thought what was good was uh You know, uh, as you were telling the story, I was relating it to a lot of guys I played with in the NFL, like, you know, Tony Gonzalez and Will Shields and some, you know, guys that are, you know, first ballot Hall of Famers and like seeing their attention to detail before and after practice in terms of like executing the basics over and over again and realizing the reason they were the best was because they did that, not like, you know, and then seeing guys that were barely on the, on the bubble that weren't going to make the team just walking by these guys who were, you know, 10, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old pros doing like basic things like catching the ball, working on all, you know, so I was hoping you could tell that Kobe story because it was great.
4: I'll be happy to. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, it's, and I think one of the hard parts is that, that if most people are being honest, that the basics, if you allow them to, they can be monotonous, they can be mundane, they can be boring. If you don't love the process so much to be able to put in that work, to know that that's the foundation to which the rest of the house is built, and that's where I think most people fall victim is uh, they just think the basics are boring, or they think the basics are beneath them. Think, oh, I'm past just being able to catch the ball. I'm going to start doing some more complicated stuff. It's like, well, if you don't even catch the ball, there's nothing to do that's after that. So, um, but the the story you were referencing, it's it's crazy that it's been over a decade now. That was back in two thousand seven. Um, Nike actually flew me out to Los Angeles to work the first ever Kobe Bryant skills Academy. Uh, So Nike decided to hold these camps where they were going to bring in the top high school and college players from around the country and put them with Nike's signature players. And in 2007, I mean, Kobe was that guy, you know, for, for any of your listeners that don't follow basketball very closely, you know, at that point, Michael Jordan had already retired a couple of times. And, And LeBron, as great as he was, you know, he was still climbing that mountain. He he wasn't the LeBron that everyone knows today. I mean, Kobe was the best player in the world. And, uh, you know, having grown up in this basketball bubble that I told you guys about, i had always heard this urban legend about how insanely intense his individual workouts were. Uh, You know, the the word was he used to call them blackouts, not workouts, because he went so hard and was so intense. And, you know, now that I was on camp staff, you know, I figured I had a chance of being able to watch one. So I, I kind of brashly walked up to him and and asked if he mind if I watch one of his workouts. And I remember him being so gracious and said, Sure, man, you know, that's, that's not a problem. I'm going to go tomorrow at four. And I still chuckle looking back because I immediately got confused at four because I knew we had a workout with the kids the next day at 330. And of course, this is Kobe Bryant. So he meant 4am. Well, you know, I, I know you guys have some 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 hard workers and some high performers and achievers that listen to this show that that know there's really not an excuse on why you can't be somewhere or do something at four in the morning. Uh, at least not an excuse the guy like Kobe's going to buy. So I inadvertently committed myself to being there. Uh, <laughs> but I was I was so hell bent on being able to impress him and leave my mark that I came up with the plan to beat him to the gym. So uh, I set my alarm for three a.m and figured I'd be there, and he'd show up and be like, wow, this young trainer, man, he's a go-getter. This is the kind of, you know. Well, anyway, I I get up at 3, I get myself together, I hop in a taxi, and I head to the gym. And when I get out of the taxi, I mean, it's 3.30 in the morning, so obviously it's pitch black outside. And yet the moment I step out of the taxi, I can see that the gym light's already on. And even from the parking lot, I could hear a ball bouncing and sneakers squeaking. Uh, I walk in the side door, Kobe's already in a full sweat. He was going through an intense warm up before his scheduled workout with his trainer started at four. So he had beat me to the gym. And, you know, out of professional courtesy, and I didn't want to be an interruption. So I didn't say anything. I just sat in the corner to watch. And I remember being shocked because of the basic stuff that he was doing for the first 45 minutes, he was doing the most basic offensive moves and footwork and pivoting drills. And I I just couldn't believe it. You know, I was expecting to go there and see some real sizzle, see some real sexiness and see some just out of this world, cool drills. And he was doing stuff that I had routinely done with middle school age players. Now, of course this is Kobe. So he was doing everything at an unparalleled level of effort and he was doing everything with surgical precision. I mean, there was nothing casual about it, uh, but the stuff he was doing was really, really basic. And the whole workout lasted a couple hours and when it was over, I didn't say anything to him, I just quietly left. But later that day I had to know, so I, I went up to him and asked and said, Kobe, you know, I don't get it, man, you're the best player in the world. Why are you doing such basic drills? Uh, And that's where he gave me that light bulb moment that changed me forever because he looked back and, and smiled, but he said with all seriousness, why do you think I'm the best player in the world? Because I never get bored with the basics. And, you know, I've told that story no shortage of a thousand times, and I still get the hairs on my neck standing up every time I tell it because I remember at that moment, that's when I realized that the key to being a high performer and a high achiever in any area of your life is to never leave the basics. And it's to always work to master them. And you can still do more advanced things, but you never abandon the basics. They will always be your foundation. And then as I already mentioned, that separation between basic and, and easy. And you know, one thing I've always found interesting, and, and John, I would certainly love your perspective. This happens inevitably every NFL season, that a team loses two or three games in a row, and in the post-game press conference after that second or third loss, the coach comes on and says something to the effect of uh, Monday's practice, we're going to get back to the basics. And of course in football, you know, that's blocking and tackling and catching. And, and it always makes me laugh not because I think I know any more than an NFL coach. Those guys are are geniuses at at leadership and what they do, but it makes me laugh that their solution to the, the problem is to get back to the basics, which then of course leads the question, why did you ever leave them in the first place? If you believe the basics is what's going to solve your problem, then don't ever leave them. Make them a major staple of every practice and every film session and everything you do, and then you don't have to worry about that. And the best coaches that I've been around and the folks that I've heard, you know, I've heard stories about Coach Belichick, which I know you can speak to, uh, those guys never leave the basics. that they, they master those, and that's why over long periods of time, they just dominate. And, and I've tried to incorporate that into my life. And occasionally I get sucked into the shiny object sy- syndrome and I try to, to skip the basics and it always ends up being a pitfall and I always have to go back to them.
3: Yeah. what say a big guy about uh, this? Yeah, well, uh, the, I've told these guys that there's a lot of bullshit in the NFL and um, it's kind of interesting. Like there's certain things like uh, at the end of the season, when the, uh, when the head coach comes in and fires a strength coach, is usually like, hey, uh, I'm on my last legs and what I'm going to do is I'm going to sacrifice the strength coach because do you really think the strength coach is calling plays? He's just like the sacrificial lamb. The other one is, is uh, when they lose a bunch of games and we got to get back to who we are and the basics. That's another one for... Uh, Our game calling or our play calling is really bad. And we probably need to simplify it because the people aren't able to execute it. And so, like, I've I've been in situations like that where, you know, because they they come in with a book that's about six inches thick and there's thousands of plays. And everybody wants to be this, you know, uh, you know, play calling genius. And it's usually this, uh, you know, offensive coordinator that has dreams of being a, you know, head coach in the future. And so he's got to show all the great stuff he can do. And invariably, that ends up going in kind of a negative direction. And then there's this whole thing of like, hey, uh, we have to go back to who we were, which is, you know, basically used to be running the ball. But now the NFL's kind of changed where, you know, the yeah. rules no longer are set up for people to run the ball the way they, they they used to. So I guess that's just throwing the ball and, you know, being conservative in it. Everybody always wants to go for like the big win in this. And it's just like, man, like small little dump passes, catch your tight end out of there and put them in the flat, run the ball, hopefully have a little bit of defense I mean, it, it always makes me laugh that everybody's like, oh, Belichick's so good. I'm like, what do they do? They play special teams. They don't make mistakes. They always play defense. And when they throw the ball, they usually catch it. Yeah. Like that's,
4: but, those, but those are the basics. Yeah, that's what's those like are the basics.
3: It. It's like, yeah, like have a defense that doesn't kill you. Uh, yeah. Be disciplined on special teams. Then have a quarterback that can actually like not throw it at their feet, a la Donovan McNabb.
4: Yeah. It was funny. I mean, I only played football for two years in uh, in high school, and uh, you can probably tell by my build, I was a wide receiver and a punter. So, uh, yeah, wasn't wasn't much into football. But I remember my coach said something that, that was pretty profound. And he basically said, "Do you realize if we gain four yards every single time we snap the ball, we will never lose?" And you take a step back, and you're like, "Okay, let me think about. It. Okay, yeah, that basically means. I mean, you're marching the ball down the field. You will never." ever lose and then he would say okay on this snap you do what you're expected to do in your everything in your power to make sure we get four yards now we ran the ball most of the time so me as a wide receiver i did jack squat my whole career except go out and block you know the cornerback but but basically he's like if, if you guys all do exactly what you're supposed to do just on this one snap to greatly increase the chance that we get four yards on just this one play then we'll never lose. And obviously that doesn't always happen, but that mindset of breaking it down and going, well, let me just play my role on this one play so that we can get four yards. It's, it's really a combination of the basics and that, that trusting and respecting the process that I know, you know, everybody talks about.
3: I'll, I'll even simplify it even more than that. Uh, oh, Dick, Dick Vermeil told us that uh, if you end every offense position with a kick, uh, regardless if it's a home game or an away game, you will win 92% of the time over the entire course of the NFL. So he had a statistician that went back and he would, like wow. would pull all these statistics. And the guy pulled a statistic over like 30 or 40 years in the NFL that if an offense ends every play with a kick, they will win 92% of all games over the course of the NFL history. So if you end uh, every position with either a punt or an extra point, uh, you win. And uh I remember thinking like
1: can Don't that, turn the fucking ball that, over <laughs> Can that be
3: fucking accurate? And then you're like, well don't throw an interception. Don't yep. uh you know don't, don't fumble, fumble the ball and just, you know, always put you know, whether you're either punting, or you know turn or, over on downs, right? Or yeah, yeah. If you're punting it, you're kicking a field goal, or you're kicking an extra point. Like and then, yep. like, two out it, of the
4: three yeah. are resulting in points. Yeah, yeah. In
3: points. And then it's like, uh, and then they did another statistic that it's like, uh, you know, they always have this deal called plus or minus, where, like, hey, if uh, yeah. we fumbled twice, but they fumbled three, we're plus one. So I think if you play zero to plus one, uh, you win, uh, like, I forgot, like, uh, if it's. Like a home game, you can go down to like negative two and still have the chance to win. On the road, if you're if you're negative one, you guarantee yep. to lose. And so Dick had he would always come in and give these statistics, and I think he thought it was helpful. It totally wasn't, because the minute that something <laughs> happened, people would be like, god ninety two percent of the time we're going to fucking now we're lose." <laughs> and then they would just throw in the ten. I remember him being like, "Aren't these statistics uh, interesting?" And I'm like, "No, yeah, like." Stop fucking telling people what's going to happen because dudes would just be like, "Ah, oh, fuck, we turn the ball over twice. We're on the road. We're going to lose. And then they fucking throw in the towel. I mean, I found That's it fucking fascinating. I never thought about that. Well, uh, yeah, I just found it fascinating because uh, um, it just fucking it was just information. But uh, we also had a funny one where we went down to Houston, I think, and we scored. We had five or six rushing touchdowns in the first half, which had never been done in history. And he knew it because we had the fucking statistics. So we went Uh out and we ran the ball. We had, uh, yeah, it was, I want to say it was five or six rushing touchdowns in just the first half. And, like, at that point, it was, like, so far off of the realm of, like, any of his statistics that he, like, gave us a game ball. Being like, you statistically did something that had never been done in
2: the history of the NFL. And I still have that game ball. It's pretty funny. Well, this... Reminded me of your introduction, and you dropped the very first step for raising performance is learning how to live present. So not in the statistics and everything that's happened in the history of the NFL, but next play, controllables, and process. So that was one of your first pages here that you dropped that bomb on, I mean, I believe. Live in the now. Live, Don't in live now, now, absolutely. absolutely.
4: Don't they, live in they, Dick
2: for Meal statistics.
4: <laughs> That's that acronym WIN WIN What's Important Now. And, oh, and really the, the present moment is all that we have. And, and any of us can easily get sucked into getting distracted by the past, you know, something that happened five minutes ago, five days ago, five years ago, or we get really anxious about what might happen in the future, whether it's in five minutes, five days, or five years, uh, that we rob ourselves of being in the present and you know, I'm of the belief that the only way you can maximize your performance, the only way you can be the best that you're capable of, and probably, you know, the only way you can be truly happy and fulfilled is by living in that present moment. And um, is, as important as that is, that is without question my own biggest personal challenge every day when I wake up is not allowing the, 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 the past and the future to distract me and be in that present moment. And the, the high performers, the Kobes, the Tom Brady's, they're the ones that are in that moment. And, and it's like the world slows down when they're fully present. And, and I do believe that it takes three things to be present. It is that immediate focus on the next play. It's being able to control what you can control which really is only your attitude and your effort if we brush everything else away and that it is trusting and respecting the process. And if you can find a way to put most of your effort and most of your energy and attention into those three pillars, uh, because as human beings, we're fallible. I mean, even a a Tibetan monk is not gonna be present 100%. Uh, of the time of their life, but uh, the goal is to be as present as often as possible. Uh, if you can do those three things, uh, you'll see performance in any capacity you know, uh, improve drastically.
2: And in, in line with that, the same introduction, and why I appreciate it is, you put the, the ball in the player's court, right? They have to make a choice to close the gap between what you know, you're challenging the, the reader here, close the gap between what you know what you do and you lay out some vital questions for those so what are the or what are the questions and what are the origins of these questions
4: well you know really it all comes back to this thing called a performance gap and and every one of us has performance gaps and that is as you just said it's the difference between what we know we're supposed to do and what we actually do and the highest performers in any capacity have found ways to reduce Uh, that performance gap, at least in the most applicable areas, Uh, because performance gaps can be very compartmentalized. You know, uh, you may have a very narrow performance gap when it comes to your health and fitness and wellness. uh, But then when it comes to your financial life, you've got a financial, you know, you've got a performance gap big enough, you could drive a a truck through it. So uh, the key is being able to figure out the most applicable performance gaps that you have to close. Uh, I'm a huge advocate of professional development and constantly learning. That's why I I devour podcasts and books and I'm always trying to, to pick up some new nuggets and learn some new stuff. And yet I have full humility in knowing that if I didn't learn a single thing for the next year, not a single thing, nothing new went in, but all I did was execute the stuff that I already know my performance and success would go through the roof. That's how much stuff all of us are leaving on the table of things that we know and we don't do. And, you know, especially, you know, with you guys in the, the, the strength and conditioning and fitness world, I mean, we realize that obesity is an epidemic in our country. And yet, if you were to ask any person on the street, any fully functional adult that has all of their faculties, and you ask them to make a list of the healthiest foods they know of, they could do that. Uh, If you ask them how much sleep they're supposed to get every night, they would shout out a number immediately. Uh, If you ask them, can you just kind of etch out, you know, what you should do for physical fitness, you know, how many times a week should you work out and, and what kind of things should you do? I mean, they're not going to be able to, to design a workout the way you guys can, but they would probably say, hey, you know, get up and get moving for 30 to 40 minutes a couple times a week. So everybody knows what they're supposed to do. Yet clearly and statistically, most people aren't doing those things. That's why our country is getting fatter by the minute. So it's not a problem of people not knowing. It's a problem of people not doing. And in this yes, information sir. age we live in, well, I think it always comes back to uh, two things. One, they've grooved patterns and behaviors in their life that are conducive to comfort uh, because we all default to doing what's most comfortable. And people are so fearful and resistance of change that when they have to change a behavior that they're comfortable with, they don't like doing that, and you know, all of us know when you change something you're used to doing, there's going to be some temporary discomfort. Uh, but that's why I'm I'm so thankful to have been in the performance world, in the strength and conditioning world, where all of us were taught, just like it's taught in football and basketball, that discomfort is a good thing. The discomfort is something we should embrace because it unlocks the key to where we're trying to go. And if you can weather the temporary discomfort, even if you're just trying to etch out that last rep of a bench press, that temporary discomfort is what's going to allow you, in this case, to get stronger in the bench press. Uh, so you have to be willing to push through that. But most people uh, spend every ounce of energy they have resisting and hiding and fearful of change. And that's the problem. And uh, if we could get folks to lean into that, and and that would be one of the keys in closing that gap. And then it's about creating new habits. Um, I'm a huge James Clear fan. If, if you guys have read his book, Atomic Habits, it's, it's a must read and James breaks it down so systematically about how little changes we can make to our own environment can reduce the friction to make things uh, much easier to do, and I bring that up because most people that that don't have a healthy lifestyle, it's because they've created an environment that is conducive to them being unhealthy. They surround themselves with other unhealthy people. They've got cupboards full of of junk food. You know, they, uh, they everything in their life is designed. it's their own fault, is designed in a way to encourage them to not be healthy. And if they would change that environment, it would reduce that friction. And then if they would change the way they approach discomfort and change their mindset, then they'd be able to make those changes no problem.
2: Yeah, with um, just going back to my education, big in behavior change, the first things that they needed needed to change before you quit smoking and did anything you're not supposed to do was social and environment. Essentially, who's in your corner, who's communicating to you, and what do you got in your house? Or what do you got in your car? So those are those first two, the most important things. If you didn't have those on lock, you're not gonna change your behavior. Do you you think it comes at a young age? Then you have
4: to, then you're, you're using willpower and you're trying to say, okay, I've got to gut through this and grit my teeth. When if you just change the environment and James says something to the effect of, you know, that you should surround yourself with the people that have the habits that you want to have. So if you want to be someone that goes to the gym several times a week and is healthy, then you need to surround yourself with people where that's normal. That's just what they do. That if you continue to hang around people that that aren't, then you going to the gym now makes you abnormal and makes you swimming against the stream. And that's just not sustainable for most people. So it's if, if you want to improve any area of your life, you need to be around people and in an environment that will enable you to do that with as little friction as possible.
3: Dude, strength works that way. If you want to be stronger, get to hang out with stronger people. Is I that mean, why you're so, that you're why so weak? That's, you're weak. that's <laughs> why I'm uh, I, I, Don't worry. I'm don't I'm worry. Strong. We're going to hire some stronger people one of these days <laughs> just to help you guys along. Yeah, you're going to have to. I love that. But it. But I mean, though. it's uh, like I, like I, I kind of go back and think like, uh, like, where does this idea of comfort come from? And more importantly, like, is it something that, is innate within our our DNA, and it just, you know, if it's not challenged or not tested, it just becomes that, like like you said, that that smooth groove. Or is it something that within, uh, you know, as parents, and I know we discussed that piece of like, yeah. as a parent, how do you continually to force your kids into uncomfortable situations where they start searching them out, they start looking for the road less traveled instead of, um, you know, and I was kind of thinking like, God, as a parent, do we kind of push our kids into the easier path because it's easier on us or it's just less friction and less tears and so hey just do whatever's easiest opposed from like you know the road less traveled is going to teach you the best uh, you know, the best way for it. And I, dude, I, I tell my daughters this like every, it feels like I, I repeat myself like a crazy person where I'm like, uh, <laughs> like I, I've tried to explain them that the day that they can fall in love with like the process of um, of learning from being like from not good to good. And like, I, I, like they, they started riding horses and they were so upset that they weren't better at riding horses. And now they've been riding for two years and they're pretty good. And I'm like, like but they didn't enjoy the fact that like they went from, uh, you know, not good and like not like uh, like what's the word? Um, capable. Yeah, capable. And now they've transitioned into like where now the summer's coming up and the uh, the lady at the horse school wants them to be counselors to work with the other kids and they're seven, and so they're like so proud. They're like, oh, we got so much better. And and I was trying to explain it. I'm like, the day that you guys fall in love with the process of like transitioning from like from the beginner to in the know, like that's like that's when you can apply that process to anything and like you enjoy the sucking, you enjoy the white belt to be able to progress in and uh, they just look at me and are like, shut up old man, You <laughs> don't know what you're talking about, but like they're in such a rush to be good at everything that they never really enjoy it and I'm just like man, it's just something that parents aren't teaching their kids that like, let's just make it easy. Cause it's easy on us. And then they just grow up and we don't arm them with that information. One
1: day they're going to come back to you and be like, dad, I was listening to this podcast and like this guy said something so
4: fucking monumental. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the process.
0: You know, and that is that, that, like, that,
4: ah. that makes me chuckle the most about fatherhood is, you know, I already know that in a couple of years I'm going to have to hire trainers to train my kids. Cause they won't listen to anything that I say. Cause I'm just their dad. And, and that's okay with it. But to answer your original question, I do think it's a little bit of both. My guess would be that, that each of us is born with some genetic potential intolerances for discomfort, but that that's not 100% preset, that, that it is something that can be improved over time. And a lot of that comes from us as parents modeling and holding our kids accountable to that behavior. And that, yes, if you encourage the process and you model it in everything you do and you encourage your kids to take risk, which means they're going to fail and they're going to fall down and they're going to get knocked down, but to get back up and to keep going, um, absolutely those things can, can be expanded upon. I mean, it's like anything else. I mean, not everyone is born with the genetic potential to bench 400 pounds, but everyone can get stronger in the bench press and same thing in any capacity. You know, and when I think back of of a player like Stephen Curry, you know, everyone always makes such a big deal over the fact that his dad played in the NBA for 12 years and was a, a really good long distance shooter. And to me, the best gift his dad gave him was the modeling of the behavior. I mean, it's documented that he used to take Steph and his brother Seth into the gym when they could barely walk or talk, and they would just sit there while he was getting his shots up. And they learned at a very early age that connection between the process, and the outcome. That, hey, my dad's in the NBA and he's a pretty good shooter, and oh yeah, five or six days a week, my dad goes in an empty gym when no one's watching and he makes a thousand shots. To me, that's the best gift he gave them. It wasn't anything he handed to them genetically. It wasn't you know the fact that he taught them the mechanics of shooting. It was that he showed them that if you want to get good at anything, here's how you do it. And, you know, for me, certainly wasn't anywhere on a level of Adele Curry. uh, But that's what I try to model for my kids and make sure that they understand the connection that if you want to get good at anything, you have to trust that process. And you have to put in purposeful reps during the unseen hours. And if you're willing to do that, then you'll be as good as you're capable of being. And if that's good enough to be a world class At whatever, that's great. If not, at least, you know, you maximized all the tools that you had. And that's what I think is missing from today. I think you said it perfectly, John. Parents, they're looking for the easy way out to make their lives as parents easier. Like what's easier, letting my kid cry right now or just giving him his iPad so he'll shut up? Well, it's easier for me just to give him the iPad, but that might not be the best solution long term to whatever that issue is. So I think parents are taking the shortcuts and then kids do as well. Going back,
1: I guess, Alan and and John, to that behavioral change approach, like if you have these positive reinforcing behaviors that are making you the world's greatest, right, hitting these basics over and over and over again, and it continues to progress your success, like going back to the folks who are stuck in their ruts, do you notice that people who are able to get out of that are... I guess, become better risk takers, because I think there's an element to that as well is when I look and talk to coaches or friends or whoever who are just in a loop they want to get out of, the change requires risk, and there's unknown, and it's a behavior you're unfamiliar with, and you don't know if you adopt this new behavior or this new training system or this new program, you don't know if you're going to get the desired results. So there's like this risk aversion almost. And I think of your daughters, man, who have been the biggest risk takers in terms of like, um, and even cashy now, like flipping over bars and jumping off of things and sprinting full speed into like pricker bushes and like all this naked. stuff. Yeah, naked. And just like, yeah. does it look like I give a fuck? And I just, I can't help but think that that's, that's a positive type of behavior because it allows you to pivot um, obviously, you can get to detrimental. I right? think
3: it's genetic uh, on that piece because uh, I was um, like I was a fucking such a risk taker as a kid. Mm-hmm. And my wife was too. Like she was talking about like uh, she like there was these um, like banisters at the school. And Kate was like, oh, let me show you what I used to do with a, as a kid. And she like kind of like teetered up, sat on it and like flipped off of it and did like a backflip and landed it. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's pretty good. And uh, the girls were like oh shit. And then like, of course, like what happens, we hear tears and they're fucking trying it, which is good. (laughs) But like, like my son can't really swim, but yet he will sprint and jump right in the water. And then once he fucking goes in and comes up, I see the look in his eyes like, oh fuck, I can't swim. Like, how did I get here? (laughs) And I'm like, we've been going over this for like two fucking years, you little crazy (laughs) bastard. Uh, but like, uh, I just wonder if there's some like, uh, but I was never like risk adverse and like my mom was always like. You know, like, like, uh, when the guy was at summer Shore and talk, Neil talking about like, Hey, you know, if you don't want to jump off the 60 foot cliff, like Doris would have pushed me. My wife, my mom would have been like, fucking go.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so I just wonder if some of that's risk adverse, whereas I've been around other people whose, uh, parents are very unrisk adverse where like, um, I don't want my child to play football because they might get hurt. Uh, they live in this whole, like, uh, might, you know, this might happen, this might happen and they go through it and like. I just remember my mom never really telling us that it was like, if you don't do this, like this is the provided outcome. Like Mm -hmm. if you don't play football, you're not going to get a chance to do this. Like, so instead of like, don't play football, you might get hurt. My mom, you know, like, I I think I told you guys, I got into a, a a fight, like when I was, I think a junior or senior in high school. And I remember we got in like this big jump deal and, uh, like the next weekend, the kids were older than us and then some older kids were going to come home from college and they were going to fucking beat us up. And it was this big like West Side Story thing. And my, I was sitting at home. And my mom's like, you can go out tonight. And This was like a Friday night. I'm like, no, these dudes are out there. They're all going to come kick our ass. And she was like, well, you better go out there and fucking deal with it or you're going to have to deal with it at some point. So you better just go out there and fucking whatever happens, happens. And I remember like, oh, fuck. So I had to go to this party and I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm going to get my ass beat. And sure enough, these dudes showed up, and I'm thinking, like, oh, man, it's about to go down. But my mom, being the into- a smarter one, she did. What did she do? As soon as I left, she, Cavalry. Called, she called my brothers who were at college and was like, your, your brother's going out there. He's going to get his ass beat. And my brothers, all of a sudden, I see this, like, back gate get kicked off the hinge. And my brothers were all, like, big dudes, like, all, like, 6'4", 6'5", 300-pound. They've all played college football. And I see my two brothers walk into this high school party in my hometown which is like two hours away from school and they had all of their buddies from their football team all loaded up and they all drove out here and walked in and they're like we're going to do this and all these dudes backed down and I was like oh thank god I almost fucking <laughs> I almost got my ass beat by all these dudes and they were all guys that my brothers had played football with that were younger than them and so they came in and they were like what are you guys doing here and they were like well uh, we heard there was going to be a fight and my little brother was going to be in it so we wanted to be there and fucking defuse this whole thing and then we left and I was like oh thank god Doris Wellborn didn't tell me that was happening. And what did she do? Thank God. And I, but I went out there to get my ass beat and I knew it was coming. But fuck, mom was smarter than me on that one. But like that type of, like, I don't even know if that fucking, they probably fucking child services now. But, <laughs> um, but like that risk aversion is so weird. Like, uh, like, I don't ever want my kids to be fearful. Like, and so I, I purposely put them in situations. And I think what happens is, as parents, we like don't want to get our children hurt. So we want to wrap them in bubble wrap. But we also know that doesn't help them in any way. So it's like this balancing of like, I want to be a good parent, but as I talked, like, and I spoke at this deal this last weekend where, uh, um, you know, you have to balance the parent you want to be versus the parent your child needs you to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think about this a lot is for for coaches and athletes, and we have a, a Slack channel with our Block Ones, and we were arguing about um, that now collegiate strength conditioning, Coaches, uh, the the strength coaches are now going to be yeah. It's trending towards towards uh, employed and and managed by the medical staff, no longer by the teams st- uh, by like the football coach. So now he'll be a part of the medical staff, and now the doctors will have oversight into the S and C program, which I think is by far the worst thing that can happen, uh, because the single worst training, nutrition, and uh, advice I've ever gotten is from doctors, and so and also they're very risk averse. Like, hey, I'm not gonna sign my name to this unless I have some oversight. And like their whole deal is mitigating and this. And like, now I see like the the job of strength conditioning, just, uh, it just, it feels really wrong to me. But like, how do you put athletes in a position like, and they're talking about like, oh, all the danger of football. I'm like, it's football. These dudes are wearing pads. People are trying to kill each other. Like. What did you think? That this is going to be kind and gentle? That this is going to be a friendly thing? Like, uh, you know, that's what's always interesting whenever you see guys in basketball get hurt and everybody's like, oh, I'm like, dude, they're big dudes swinging elbows. I mean, those guys train. They bust their ass. They play a physical game. So, like, wouldn't we expect it? All right, I'm off my soapbox. Sorry.
1: And I don't think it's – I mean, John, would you say it's safe to not necessarily avoid fear but maybe, like, learn how to manage fear? You know? Um, and then even with the risk as are a Are you parent, about
3: fear or danger?
1: And. Eh, I think danger could
3: trigger fear but they're not so, one of the same. So like I don't, some people like I don't purposely live put my kids into dangerous situations but I also mm-hmm. like don't want to like ever make them fearful or or have them give in to fear. Right. And so then, how do you, how do you balance that one?
1: Well even like going to one of uh, a Spanton saying like you know, buying down risk. So it's understanding risks associated, try to remove the things that make it a high risk and push in low and medium risk items that do trigger that fear and fear to overcome jumping off a diving board or going off the high dive. Like, you know, if you feel that they have the requisite skill set to, to manage the risk, then it, that ultimately buys it down from a high risk for somebody who can't swim, aka Tex, who thinks it's his bone density. <laughs> but I swim
3: like a dolphin and I have twice the bone density as you.
1: <laughs> What's your Z index?
3: divided by eight? Uh, <laughs> so we got a uh, DEXA scans, and Chris got this DEXA scan, and they, they talked about his above average bone density. So then we got ninety nine percent off. But then we got bone scan, <laughs> bone density scans, and Luke's was highest. Burn band is and up. mine oh, wow. was next, and he was last. Okay,
2: okay, five. Let's just call it five eight. Six, foot-ish. <laughs> and yeah, like six whoa, foot-ish. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. There's no fucking I, way. I, I, he's, he's, John's that 12 inches uh, of He's got more bones. That's why it's a higher number. It's not bone volume. It's bone density. Right. It's, it's how they thick know the bones
0: your are.
1: The problem, you know why you sink so bad? It's because the blocks on your fucking feet, <laughs> cinder block feet... <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, I'm a land animal.
3: But think about this: the shorter the bones, the more, the more dense, dense they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So theoretically, the, the 12, bigger 99% person... percentile.
4: <laughs> okay, so Alan, <laughs> 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 I'm not a bone density expert. I'm a no. This, this
3: is uh, uh, you of, can play one. No one yeah, has to know yeah, that, yeah. that. Yeah, just, yeah, just like true. we play one on TV. I'm a you know, medical yeah. doc, but the uh, ah, fine. I mean so uh, you have three kids. Uh, I do, yeah, I got
4: uh, nine year old twin sons, and uh, in two weeks, I'll have a seven year old daughter. Oh, oh nice. congrats, Ooh, wow.
3: dude! So, is uh, um, I'm just gonna ask you this purely without any bias, but uh, sure, is it different raising boys and girls?
4: You know, it's it's fascinating. I mean, even the boys as twins uh, are incredibly different in so many different ways. I mean, they have different temperaments, different skill sets, different likes. Um, and and Lila, my daughter's kind of an amalgam of both of them. Uh, I do think. She's a little bit easier as far as she doesn't have quite the energy that those two have. Those two are tornadoes 24-7. Like The goal when I have them for a day is to do something that gets them tired so by the end of the day they'll actually go to sleep. She's a little bit calmer. Um, she's peaceful enough where she can sit down and play with her Barbie dolls for a couple hours and just be fine on her own where, you know, when the boys were younger, if I heard silence in the house, I knew something awful was happening and I had to go find them immediately. Man, this is uh,
3: my exact deal. My daughters are like your sons and my son yeah. is probably well, like that, the daughters. I remember
4: you saying that. That's pretty fascinating uh, that dude, it's kind of flip-flop.
3: Is, is I, it the order or I the could, sex? That- I don't know, but I'll tell you this. Like I could have 10 of my son for every one of my daughters. Like I would take yeah. like 10 of those boys. Like if I get 10 of my of, of my son Cash, he is by far like like... I come running in the house and, uh, uh, he just comes over and he like socks me in the leg and like all we do is battle. And yet like, it's just, yeah, he's pretty easy. He just wants to like, you know, that's awesome fart and, and like piss <laughs> off the deck. And you know, his favorite superhero is his, uh, is himself, which he's dubbed himself Peepy man, which is, <laughs>
4: there's the a yeah. new one for Marvel. Now the, the end game, uh, we, Marvel yeah. could have a new comic.
3: Oh <laughs> uh, dude, he's a funny no spoilers. Kid. man. He is a funny kid. I, I just think like, um, Uh, The interesting thing, and I I always think on like birth order that sometimes having older brothers really helps sisters Mm -hmm. just because like I think boys are, you know, uh, just a little bit different. So I'm always like, man, I I really wish I could have had a couple boys earlier and then had some girls, but I didn't end up like that. So I'm interested to see how it all goes down.
4: That is interesting. That is flip flopped for you. So it's really not gender based. It's this one would be more to the order.
3: uh, Tornadoes is a perfect, perfect example. Like. (laughs) Like, uh, like, and, and then uh, I don't know how your twins are, but uh, um, my daughters are like, the, they're like a, a married couple for like 60 years that don't really like each other. So like they <laughs> argue the whole time, but yet they're sitting right next to each other. And it's like, she's chewing in my ear. I'm like, it's because you guys are sitting on the same seat. Like, yeah, what do you, And means. then uh, I, I threaten them. I'm like, hey, if you guys don't act better, I'm going to put, I'm going to split you up and put you guys in two separate rooms oh my god dude that's like but what in the middle you know it's like oh my god dude you guys are like the weirdest oldest married couple who like can't do anything or think without the other one and then like the minute that they're away they're like looking for the other one i'm like god this is so weird my son could care less he's just like that's
4: hilarious yeah i love that description of them that's pretty accurate with mine as well yeah
3: and and then the the funny thing with twins is that um I think that uh, because they grow up with the other one there, they're more focused on the other twin more so than maybe like the parent and then the other surroundings a little bit. So it's a cool relationship. You get to grow up with like this. Um, are, are they identical or fraternal?
4: No, they're fraternal. And and it's funny. They they don't even look like brothers, per se. And one of them, I mean, for their age, is significantly bigger. He's about two inches taller and probably 10 to 12 pounds heavier, which when you only weigh 40, 50 pounds in the first place, is significant. So most people think if they are brothers that one of them's one or two grades above, uh, which is interesting. But no, they're very fraternal.
3: Yeah, uh, fraternal. And my one daughter's taller than my other daughter. And uh, one has dark hair, the other one has blonde hair. So blonde hair, blue eyes. Uh, brown hair, brown eyes. And then Jamie's probably two inches taller, and they're seven. That's so remarkable. and she's like, yeah, she's freakishly tall. So like my other daughter's pretty tall, but like everybody's like, oh, like, I'm like, I think she's one of the taller kids in class. It's just the problem is the other one's so tall. Well, yeah, is she tall? Is it just her enormous head? <laughs> He'd, she's hence, she's no. like she's <laughs> like when you see like, like a like a, Dober, like a Doberman puppy with like real big paws. I just keep <laughs> thinking like when you grow into that head, she's, she's gonna be huge. <laughs> uh, uh, she's cute as hell, but uh, I like yeah, to yeah no dome. On she <laughs> her. does have a huge dome. Like I believe me, I'm, I'm like, like, like this is. <laughs> oh they uh so uh just a hilarious thing they um they have a deal where like in first grade they all had to run a time mile and uh-huh. so like they had like three classes in first grade and so the first time they ran it my one daughter finished first and my other daughter finished second and then the next time they ran it the other one finished first and the other one finished second and then they took like the top 10 kids and they had to all run a mile for time and then they like gave them a ranking so my one daughter came in third and my other daughter came in fifth and like you would have thought that like somebody had died or like been murdered or like you know it was the worst crisis like so upset and like uh like I'm like listening to this and like she ran like I want to say one of them ran like a sub eight minute then it was like an eight thirty wow. which is pretty good six seven years old to run a oh mile oh my gosh house. that's real fast and uh, so then they they like both independently came to me um and were like hey this summer uh, can we work on some stuff to make me faster. And then I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Don't worry. We come up in the gym. And then like and then the other one went away. And like an hour later, uh, the other one came over and they were like, so you think there's some stuff I could do up at the gym that would help me get faster? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure we could do it. And then, and then it was like, don't tell the other one. And I'm like, what do <laughs> yeah. you think that we're going to do some secret fucking training program without your sister <laughs> knowing? But I just the thought it was hilarious that they're like, program. dad trains people. He could probably get us faster. And uh, I'm just like, these kids are fucking crazy. That's so Funny. cool. Nothing better than parenting, man. Fatherhood's pretty awesome. Uh, Luke's got one on the way. I'm pretty excited. Uh, number one, Sparky, yeah, that's right.
1: sparky Summers. Oh. Sparky Summers. Got a system. Just listen to guys <laughs> like you and what's working and what's not and just be weary of it because who knows if it will work or not. That's well,
3: truth. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, uh, as I said the other day, there is no truth. There's only the search for truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, but it, it helps
1: guide your approach, perhaps. I don't know. We'll see.
3: Well, I just know they're like dogs. They're better if there's two or three of them around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, no. You, you don't want to be that. Oh, I thought
1: them. you meant like just have a bowl of water around and they'll take care of
3: themselves. No. <laughs> I just feel awful for people where they have like one kid and the parents are just staring at the whole kid like, this is our kid. I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. That was a lot of pressure. I had two older brothers. Thank God. I can you imagine if it was just
4: me? It'd be awful. Text. Yeah, from a social dynamic, I, I agree I with you on that. Lots of sisters.
3: <laughs> uh, text,
4: text group with all sisters. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that for the truth standpoint, I mean, what, what works for one parent doesn't necessarily work for another, but even, even with my own kids, one, what works for one kid doesn't even work with the other two and they're raised in the same house. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a constant evolution. It's always changing, but yeah, and you know, when I'm, that's, like, that's really what anything is also trying to wrap my head
1: around is what didn't work now may work later. So like, yes. you can't just totally dismiss. Your toolkit, you just kind of got to, what Embo from Deuce, she's like, daily adaptability, but don't forget what you've tried. Like, Mm. like, "Hmm, that's an interesting way to think about it. That's a great phrase. Yeah, yeah.
3: Well, uh, my my mom's kind of parenting style was uh, very like blunt force trauma. Yeah, fit into Uh, my system. Yeah. (laughs) So, what's what's hilarious is when my mom came and visited us with my daughter, she like tried to go in there and fucking like buffalo them into doing shit by just yelling at them. And uh, my one daughter fucking went right into fucking line. Like fucking grandma's fucking crazy. I'm gonna go this way, and my son was kind of like, uh, and then my other daughter completely melted down and like was like, fucking this, I'm not having this. And my mom was like, why is she crying? I'm like, well, you're fucking trying to like bully these kids into doing things. She's like, well, it seemed to work with you guys. I'm like, yeah, but like, like. <laughs> Like that universal approach, you're only going to get two thirds out of this thing. Like, like, yes. like that one third's going to leave gonna behind. Miss a couple <laughs> times, <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was, it was pretty funny. And they were, and I was like, so how'd it go? They're like, oh, Grandma's not very nice. I'm like, well, Grandma's chilled out a lot too. So uh, you're <laughs> lucky. You're yeah, welcome. Chill your so, version. So then we started lie, like joking. I'm like, hey, if you guys don't act better, I'm going to send you to live with Grandma for the summer. And they were like, oh god. But like, yeah, you so high fucking about. good. You have it. So yeah the, the even funnier thing is my mom uh, doesn't listen to the podcast thank god but i'm sure that people will she'd be like do you talk about me in the podcast i'm like no never no. never <laughs> no and like we know that like no 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 no
4: no 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 need to go what happens on the podcast stays on the podcast yeah oh uh, she
3: won't she won't she just fucking, i can't believe you told all these people this stuff i'd be like what do you uh, nobody listens to this
4: mom we're fine my parents wouldn't even know how to turn on a podcast like they wouldn't even be able to physically access it. So, yeah, that's, that's. <laughs> same territory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we can say whatever. Oh, That's too funny. So. So what projects do you have?
3: I mean, I know you're you're back in this corporate space and you're kind of doing the keynote. Do you still like uh, train athletes? Do You still have any interest or in basketball or do any consulting in that field?
4: You know, no, I've stepped away from most of the athlete stuff. I mean, now I'm kind of circling back around just playing the supportive dad role as my kids are trying all sorts of different things. And as they get older, I may get back into the coaching. Uh, I mean, I still have a few friends that are that are deep into the coaching and I'll still work a camp here and there. Or I'll still go sit in and watch a practice just because I love to be around it. Uh, but most of my focus is on the corporate space. But, um, you know, I, I'm still always uh, trying stuff with myself, trying to, um, you know, whether it's intermittent fasting or some type of strength, program or, or whatever. I mean, I'm always doing stuff just to keep things fresh in my own life, just to keep that uh, sword, uh, sword sharp and stay, stay healthy and fit, but don't do near as much in the space as I used to. Nice.
2: So I got a, a question now that you were on the, the observation side, and you had some former athletes that are now in the NBA, so I follow it relatively close, and from what I'm noticing, we are in a player empowerment era. Meaning the coach is the number one enemy, right? The player can get the coach fired. And you have some teams that are still selling and people are committing to the team idea, right? The role player in the Spurs and the Rockets. I can't remember if it was in your book or somewhere else where I heard Daryl Murray, who's the GM for the Rockets, has the conversation with each player telling them their role of how you fit into our, our system, our approach to this team. And it's like, this is a James Harden team. And so yeah. he tries to, like, stifle this before these guys get too big for their britches. And um, so what is your take on this ability for a guy under contract to demand trades and just sit on the sidelines or get coaches fired and then publicly say, no, nah, it wasn't me? What, like, what's going on with the league from your observational standpoint and knowing guys that are playing?
4: I mean, it's definitely a player controlled league and everything from the actual rules on the court which are designed to make sure that that it favors the offense and that that it's going to keep the best players on the floor because that's what scores points and scoring points is what sells tickets which is ultimately what these guys that's what their job is I mean they're in theory their job is not to play basketball their job is to put butts in the seats and sell TV rights and you can't ever forget that so from a business standpoint it's always going to be structured that way yeah I'm not a huge fan because I'm more of a purist uh, I, I don't like this where the the stars are are kind of outspoken and undermining the culture of the team because they want what's best for themselves. And I absolutely recognize and respect that these guys, I mean, it's, it's they are their own business and they have to do what they do to provide for their family. So it's not about that. Uh, sometimes I just wish maybe it could be handled differently. I mean, even in some of these coaching searches, it, I, I feel bad. Like this guy Vogel that just got hired for the Lakers, I feel bad for him because every single person right now knows that he was their fifth choice. They went after four other people that did not want the job and now they've got to pretend like they're excited that he's the coach. I mean, who's ever excited about being the fifth choice for anything? And but that's just how public everything has become. And you know, the the reason that the Warriors are so successful until someone proves otherwise they do have the most talent and in sports talent's ultimately going to win but they've created a, a pretty decent culture and and guys understand their roles and and guys are willing to make certain sacrifices where you know hey maybe i don't shoot 20 times a game i shoot 12 times a game but that's because we're going to add this other really great player and they kind of took the baton from uh, the san antonio spurs who did that really really well for a while and were able to keep great players that were super talented were able to keep them within the confines of what they were trying to do. And those guys still had very high egos, as they should. I mean, they're great at what they do, but they were able to keep a, a high self-ego and turn that into a team ego, uh, which is why I believe they're so dominant. And everyone's trying to hack their way to be able to beat them. And I don't think you can, you can do that by just simply trying to, to find these shortcuts and hacks.
2: Yeah, hopefully. I'm a Rockets fan.
3: So.
4: Well, I mean, dude, how crazy
3: is that the Lakers have LeBron and coaches don't want to go there. I mean, but but well, because they
4: know he can get them fired. If he doesn't like them, he'll get rid of them, and that's that's tough.
3: So then you have a guy who's so dominant within that whole deal that they're like, ah, I don't know if I want to go there. Uh, Well, it's
4: yeah. I mean, it's I mean, think about it. I mean, really, it just comes down to the spectrum of. I mean, they're paying LeBron thirty thirty five million a year. That's just for his playing contract, and they're going to pay a coach two to three million a year. It's obvious who they need to keep happy, and it's going to be the player. So while those those contracts get you know, such a large gap between what coaches make and what players make. That's ultimately what happens. And, you know, I was just shocked because Tyrone Lou who LeBron played for in Cleveland was their clear number one pick and they made him an offer. And he, he said they lowballed him and didn't want to take it. I can't for the life of me figure out why they didn't just raise their offer. Just pay that guy, whatever it is that he needs to be there. And then, you don't have to go down this coaching tree of now being the fifth coach. Uh, And it's happening in college all the time too. You know, Hey, we've got a job vacancy. We're going to go after, we're going to go after Luke and we're going to go after Tex and we're going to go after John. All three of them turn it down. All right, we'll take Alan. Alan's going to be our next coach. Hey, let's have a press conference and everyone get excited that Alan's our coach, even though we all know we didn't really want him. It just, you're setting these guys up uh, for failure. I, I just feel bad that everything is so public on that end.
3: And why is that? Is that to include the fans or is it just the, the media, social media or how it all kind of fits?
4: Yeah, I just think there's no escaping it now with the with social media. I don't even know that these guys could do this in secret. I mean, because um, there's somebody out there watching everything that's going on. And yeah, who knows? My guess is, too, some of them think, hey, if we promote that, you know, if we're going to really publicize that John's coming in for an interview and we all the fan base gets behind him, maybe that'll encourage him and entice him to take the job because we'll show him how much he's loved. But then the problem is you turn the job down and now we all have egg on our face and now we got to pretend like we want the next guy just as much. It's, it's tough, but we'll see. It's going to be a very interesting free agent summer in in the NBA to see where some of these guys go.
3: Well, you think about uh, LeBron head coach. I mean, they, they try to bring his guy in. The guy's like, nah, I already did that. I didn't want no part of this shit. Yeah. And it just you know, we um we uh Gunnar Peterson's a buddy of ours and he's their strength coach. Oh yeah. I and, love him. Uh, yeah. So uh we were I was talking with him the other day about it and he was like, Man, he's like these guys are you know, it's all business, everybody works real hard. Because I asked him I'm like, you know, do does LeBron have he's like LeBron's got his, you know, three or four guys, but in during the season, he's like, you know, we train him, we work with him and you know, he's yeah. hard working and he's like, dude, the guy busts his ass and you know, they're the consummate professional, but uh yep. you know, he's Makes no illusions about why he's there, what he's doing, and his role on this thing. And, uh, you know, there isn't like the, you know, you know I think I, I saw somebody recently posted that Tom Brady left about 40 or $50 million on the table by uh, playing for the Patriots and not necessarily, like, really f- you know pushing for the bigger contracts. Like, he was willing to take less money to make sure they had better players to try to win more games. Yeah, and, uh, I love that. Uh, yeah, and they were like, you know, this is how much money he left on the table. And they're like, but did he really? You know he's also married to Giselle who makes like you know seven times what he makes Rob right. uh, so like he made his money in other ways and he's got the opportunity to have been the best in, uh, the best ever have played the game so what was more important to him to be the best and to have it solidified in the rings and that or have more money in the bank account which I'm sure the day he retires from you know public speaking keynotes to you know whatever he wants to do he will be able to have his own printing press Uh, For money. So, like, it's pretty interesting. Like, um, they were, like, kind of poo-hooing. I'm like, oh, look how much money left. And it's like, yeah, but the guy gets a chance to be... Like, they'll remember his name forever. They're not going to remember what's in the bank account. No. And And it's it's
4: too bad that that's not promoted and celebrated more. I wish there were more tickers coming across ESPN saying Tom Brady chose to leave 50 million on the table so that he could get other good players. We just don't celebrate that. We talk about the guy that is going willing to walk because they they lowballed him by 3 million. And yeah, I mean if you really if this is short term versus long term, I mean, Tom says, "All right, I'm going to leave 50 million on the table, but I'm going to surround myself with so many good players that we keep winning Super Bowls, which makes my value go up exponentially higher." he's going to make that 50 million back in other ways by being the goat uh, as opposed to trying to, you know, but I've talked to some of these guys. I found that some of it, it's very rarely just about the money. They're just so motivated and so competitive that everything keeps, they keep scoring everything. And, And these dollar signs, it's not about the actual money. It's about, well, James Harden is getting 131 million and I put up better numbers than him. So if you don't offer me 132 million, then this is bullshit and I'm not gonna do it. So it's not even the money as much as it is kind of the recognition and this big scoreboard that they have in their head of what's going on at all times. And that's why it's it's great to see someone like Brady say, you know what, I'm not worried about playing the small game, I'm here to play the big game and this is what's in our best interest. Because these players all say that they wanna win and then they do something that is completely uh, contrary to that, you know, all I wanna do is win a championship but I'm gonna go play for this team that has no chance of winning a championship because they pay me the most money. It's like, just own it. Just, just say, hey, this is how I provide for my family. I wanna make sure that I've got FU money to go for generations and generations, and I'm gonna go wherever people pay me the most. You have that right. I don't think anyone would second guess that, but it's when they, they act like winning's most important, and then they do something that shows that that's actually not what's most important.
3: Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, like, uh, the only thing I can equate it to was when we were in college, uh, you know, we used to always have this joke where they would be like, education is number one, (laughs) football (laughs) is number
2: two, you know, and it's like that was the... For our listeners, when John said education is number one, he He put two fingers up. Yes.
3: Yeah,
1: like (laughs) wink, (laughs) wink.
3: Yeah. uh Yeah, wink. And I... Like, that was, like, a and and the funny part is, is we used to, like, kind of make that joke, and then we had a coach come in, and it was, like, remember, football <laughs> is number two, you know, <laughs> school is number one, <laughs> like, don't you ever fucking forget it, and we were, like, have we been making this joke for years, did they fucking, yeah. uh, is this place bugged, but, yeah, that's, oh, that's the, awesome. uh, yeah, like, that's the you know, age-old, you know, like, uh, oh, you know, I'm here to win a championship and be a great contributing member to the team. And like, as they're saying it, you're like, no, you're just fucking here because they paid you the money, dude, and you're going to be a fucking shitbag and ruin this thing. So
2: it <laughs> eh, just happens. Question for both John and Alan. And, Alan, you've seen Brad Stevens have some success jumping from college to professional. Have you observed any coaches that were not successful, either football or basketball, transitioning from a college to professional. As a coach. I mean,
4: I'll just speak on the basketball side. I know there's some really good examples on the football side too, but I mean, Brad's really the only one that's done it fairly well. Um, the rest of them have have struggled. John Calipari struggled big time and ended up going back down to college. Uh, Rick Patino, same thing, went to the pros, struggled big time, went back down to college. Uh, now John Beeline's leaving Michigan and just took the Cleveland Cavaliers job. And, you know, I mean, I love Coach Beeline. I think he's remarkable, but. It's going to be really hard for him to turn that around, and I think they are two completely different ecosystems, um, you know. And that that I do believe at its core, a good coach is a good coach when we just talk loosely about the definition. Uh, but running a professional team versus running a college team are are very very different. And I think it's important to know what it is that you do best and stick in that that role. And you know, perfect example. I mean, Greg Popovich, you know, he's he's on the Mount Rushmore of great. Uh, professional coaches, I don't necessarily think he'd be a great college coach. And I think he's one of the best to ever do it. I just think his temperament and his style serves the pro game much better. Uh, whereas some of these other guys do better at college. And, and I'm so pleasantly surprised to see Brad Stevens do so well. Cause he's always been one of my favorite, but uh, yeah, more times than not, it does not work on the basketball side.
3: I always think of John Wooden, if John Wooden had been a pro coach and not in college. But all is Guys turning pro, they love him. Yeah, they loved him, but that was because he caught them at a point in their, in their like very very influential time in their lives. 18 years old coming to a school, um, you know. I don't know if you can mentor 23, you know, 30 year old men the same way that you can mentor those kids. Um, and like all the guys that I've seen that were college coaches, like uh, who's the guy for Alabama? Uh, Saban. Yeah, Saban. That tried to go to the Dolphins. I had a couple of buddies that played at the Dolphins, and it was like that dude showed up and tried to treat us like college players. And I'm like, Yeah. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, it was it was a funny statement. Like they said it, and I'm like, What does that mean treat you like a college player? And he's like, Ah, uh, he was a total asshole and belittled us. He didn't. Yeah. He wasn't treating adults like adults. He was trying to treat us like a bunch of 18 year old kids. And I thought all I could think of is like, that sounds like a uh, preconceived bias that this guy's from college, he's going to act like this. But then uh, he told me some of the stories. I'm like, no, nah, he sounds like a douchebag. Uh, he yeah. just seems like a dick. And But, oh, yeah. um, you know, it's my oh. way or the highway. And I think, like, you can, there's a, there's a certain point in your life when you are a poor college kid and, like, you're coming into this situation and, like, you can get kind of in the machine where that works. But you get a bunch of dudes that are probably not, not that much younger than you uh, that are probably like, ah, you can go fuck yourself. You know, I make a lot of money here. Like, uh, I have a contract. Like, there's just a a little bit of friction. And I think the one thing that's um, interesting in the NFL is uh, like the like different than college in that like. I really appreciated the NFL where there wasn't the rah-rah bullshit that we had in college. Like There was always right. this, like, rah-rah... The Mariucci? Yeah, the Mariucci. The t- water t- pump? Yeah, the water pump story where, like, you know, you gotta, like, try to, like, sell a bunch of snake oil and then when you get to the NFL, you're like, here's the deal. You're getting paid a lot of money to do this. I need you to fucking do your job. We're gonna get something else. And that's what I appreciate. I mean, can you imagine Bill Belichick going to a college and having to recruit and kiss parents' asses D3, and get them to kid? D3 All-Star. He was, but dude, he was, cut like uh, like, his whole deal was, like... You do your job, I'll do my job, and we'll win a lot of games. Like, that was, I remember being like, this is the greatest fucking coach I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm like, "There, there is no rah-rah bullshit. Just do your fucking job, don't talk to the media, and everybody will win games, and we get to go home and fucking party. Yeah. Did, you and know, if you if don't Mary do your
4: job, we're going to find someone that will. So yeah, we'll see
3: you 100%. Later. Fucking great. Uh,
4: I, I remember having a conversation, this would have been, Probably 10, 12 years ago, this was before the, uh, you know, uh, like the one and dones in college basketball. And we're having, cause I'm I'm a big Duke fan by way of the fact that I've always been a coach K fan. Um, and that back in the day, when Duke players were staying for three or four years, uh, the Shane Battiers and the Jay Williams and the Christian Leitners and Bobby Hurley's and folks were talking about the fact that, most Duke players didn't do real well at the pro level. Like probably the best might be Grant Hill. And even, you know, Grant Hill's a remarkable player, but I mean, he's not in that upper echelon of all-time greats. So people are always trying to figure out how could Duke be one of the most successful college programs? And even though they put a lot of players in the NBA, their guys don't seem to thrive. And I had this really interesting conversation and and some of the folks thought it was that difference that when you were at Duke, you were basically part of this insulated family. And when practice was over, you still hung out with your teammates. You guys went to the movies together. You went to the cafeteria together. Like you were all part of a family and then you get to the pros and it's not that way anymore. When practice is over, everybody goes their own way, goes home to their own families, does their own thing. And the Duke guys are like, okay, I'm a little bit lost, and and I know there's a lot of speculation with that, but I, I just thought that was an interesting way to look at it, that that was when it dawned on me that there was a huge difference between, oh, yeah. besides age, the college game and the pro game, that the okay. pros, you guys are professionals, you come in and you, you do your job, just like if you were working at IBM, and then you all go home and you do your thing, and that's probably the same thing from a coaching standpoint that you, you, you got, you know, like you kind of own these college guys where they're there. They do anything you tell them to do. Then you get to the pros and you're with a bunch of grown men that have families and this is their business. You can't treat them that way.
3: Yeah. Well, I did. I remember, uh, as a rookie, um, you know, sitting there and then all of a sudden, like, I remember we were in training camp and like, there was a bunch of other rookies and we're hanging out. And like, at the end of practice, we were like, kind of getting dressed and like, kind of looking around, like, and all these dudes are like, ah, you know, and everybody left. And like, it was all yeah. like the young dudes. And we were like, man, like nobody really hangs out. And they're like, no, they got fucking wife and kids. They got like other shit yeah. to go do. Like, like they'd like, you really realize quickly that the college environment that it kind of flourished. Uh, we, we had the opportunity, uh, coach K and Dick Vermeil were good friends. Uh-huh. Uh, so with coach K, we met him. He came and spoke to us before a game and then oh, hung nice. out with us. And I actually had uh sat at the table and, and ate with him. And, um, my wife went to North Carolina and wow. absolutely fucking hates Coach K and Duke. Of course. So, like, and... um, I have to. Uh, yeah, so, like, one of my, my best jokes is, like, I'm a Duke fan merely because I met Coach K, which is, like, this huge fucking... Like, we battle on it. She's like, you're such an asshole on this stuff. I'm like, yeah, because he was... Fine. <laughs> and she's like, he's the worst, you know? I'm like, well, you're from North Carolina. But if uh uh he was... Not only one of like the coolest, most uh, just like very calm uh, like uh, just so matter of fact i I just really enjoyed hanging out with him. I was like, man, like this feels like somebody if I met him, I would want to play for him. It just Absolutely. felt like everybody was like i 'm going to make sure everybody 's going in the right direction, like like nobody 's getting rattled where the ba-. like it, there was just a, a very interesting sense of confidence, and he just inspired kind of just calmness in everybody else I was like he 's a pretty cool cat like I just <laughs> And enjoyed being around him. And I enjoyed, you could see the intensity with which he was, you know, not only presenting and talking to us. And I always thought that it was funny that he got up and talked to all these NFL guys and he even said it, he's like, you guys are a little bit bigger than the guys I'm used to talking to. <laughs> and he's not that big a dude, you know? So right. but yeah, I really enjoyed uh, getting to spend time with him.
4: Well, and I think, you know, it's funny because he's also the one, the anomaly to this because of his ability to coach the Olympic team those years and basically coach pros, even though he was a college coach. So he was kind of the exception. Uh, But I think it's for that reason that you just said that that he can he can assimilate. He understood the difference between being the college coach and being the U S men's Olympic team coach. And he didn't go in there and try and coach them like they were his team at Duke. Uh, he went in, you know, and, and, uh, I remember this being documented as well. I mean, he basically went in that first year and sat down with Kobe and LeBron and Chris Paul and said, look, I might be the coach, but this is your team. You guys are the one to run this team. So I want you guys to tell me what the standards need to be. That What offenses do you like to run? How do you think we should? And really went in there and deferred. And that was how he won them all over because he didn't come in there with an iron fist saying, I know what's best because I've won this many championships. He came in and said, hey, I know the college game pretty good. I don't necessarily know the pro game as well as you guys. So if you can help teach me, I'll help lead you and we'll all win, you know, a, a rack of gold medals on top of that. So he had this, the, the social awareness and social maturity to be able to go in there and assimilate. And I'm guessing that's what most of these other guys have not been able to do. Well, he also had the chops,
3: which I think like yeah. uh, if you're um, good point, the one thing, which is, and this has just always kind of struck me is uh, guys that play basketball at the highest level, like the NBA guys are at their core uh, basketball fans. Like, yeah. and, and the only thing that kind of blew me away was um, I, like, I remember seeing something on TV and there was like a, a McDonald's all American, or it was like that big basketball thing they did. And like, they would bring in all these high school kids and they're competing. The amount of NBA dudes that were at that game was insane. Like, oh, it, yeah. it's like, it's like NBA dudes will show up to a high school basketball game. And I'm thinking to myself, football fan, football players aren't that way. Like I would have never gone to a high school football game. <laughs> like I wouldn't have gone to the shrine. Like, even though I played in it, like football players are just very different. Whereas I feel like, uh, like you said, like Kobe will put on a, a, a camp and bring in like the top players. And I was also watching one where, um. Uh, Michael Jordan did something similar, and there was some like big high school kid who was like a pretty good player, and I guess he called Jordan out, and Jordan just like yep. schooled him, and it kind of yep. broke the kid, where like he never really amounted to much in the NBA, and he's like, uh, you know, <laughs> he's, he still talked about I, I, like I can't remember who it is, but he was a, but like I, I just always picture that, and I'm like, man, like nothing ever happens like that in the NFL. You never have a situation where these top NFL players put on That's a camp one. for these kids, like it just. It's just a very different culture, and the one thing that just blew me away was that shit, man. Like, uh, can you imagine being a high school kid and just all of a sudden looking out there and there's like six or seven, you know, high profile NBA guys that just showed up to watch you hoop, and that's yeah, common occurrence. Crazy. So I just always wonder if those guys are like just uh, fans or or whatever. But a, a guy like Coach K, who has the chops, like he sits down with those guys and they all know who he is. They have all right. played with guys, they've heard this, and they know that he's a successful dude, and they're like. If you're gonna bring in, if you're gonna bring in somebody from college and dude like bring in Coach K I'd be more than happy to play for him. Absolutely. So I, I think like that was the deal where if they brought in somebody who did not have his chops like those guys would be like who the fuck is this guy This guy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Good point. Yeah. It's a a term I used to call perceived relevance, which is making those guys actually believed that Coach K still had stuff that he could teach them to make them better. You know, one thing I found being around elite level players, the moment they don't think you can add any value to them or to their game or to their brand, they're done with you. They don't want to have anything to do with you. So um, the fact that I think you just teed that up perfectly, that they've watched him, they know him, they respect him and believe that he still had some things he could teach them to make them better than their all ears. Cause those guys all crave being the best that they can be. Um, But obviously as you climb that ladder and you get better and better, the number of people who can make you better and add value gets smaller and smaller. I mean, you can't, you know, some some guy off the street's going to walk up and tell Steph Curry needs to change his shooting mechanics. Like, no, that ain't going to happen. There's probably only a couple of people that he would listen to for that. But coach K happens to be one of those guys that just have so much perceived relevance that, yeah, those pros were, were willing to listen.
3: Uh, I'm, I uh, I love Popovich. I think he's great. Yeah, uh, me too. I just love how like outspoken he is, and like um, even though I don't always agree with you know he'll fucking jump into some political, some social commentaries, and he gets into some stuff. I'm just amazed that uh, one. Um, uh, I don't know about you know. I just know his coaching style is pretty fucking you know high speed, low drag. But the one thing which was interesting to me is he seems to get away with a lot more than other coaches do. Like I've heard his press conferences and this, and I'm like, man, like. It's do people give this dude a big bird like they like a lot of leeway. I mean, dude, he's out there, you know, talking about, you know, uh, Trump and these kids and the So, you know, the whole family, I mean, he will comment on all of this where I've never really heard other coaches do that. And if they do say shit like that, they're usually gone pretty quick. I'm just wondering why that individual has kind of gotten that.
4: I, I think he does. I think he's he's passed that 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 point where, look, I'm going to speak my mind and I'm going to use my platform to do what I think is right, even if people don't agree with me. And if you're going to get rid of me based on that, then I don't want to be here anyway. Whereas most guys are probably fearful uh, of their job. I know there were, there were two Popovich stories that I had told to me. So I don't know if, you know, if they were a hundred percent true or not, but I, they seem in alignment with who he is, you know, one, and they're actually changing it, I think for 2020 where free agency in the NBA starts at midnight on July 1st. I mean, so teams literally are, outside of a guy's house. And at 12.01, they knock on the door to offer him a contract. And it's, it's kind of like the old midnight madness when college programs could start practice. And I remember, uh, an inter- uh, a reporter asked Popovich and said, Hey, I know you guys are interested in so-and-so. Are you going to be at his house? Are you going to call him at 12.01? And he said, no, absolutely not. You know, I usually wake up about eight or eight 30 and, you know, I'll call him when I wake up. And if he expects me or needs me to be there at 12.01, he's not the type of player I want to coach anyway. So um, that'll be fine. And and that was just his approach to it. It was kind of my way or the highway. Uh, and then the other was in the NBA, most teams have a two bus system when they play at away games. And the early bus goes over to the arena about three, three and a half hours before tip-off. And that's usually the younger players, uh, the rookies and and some of the newer players. And they go over and they get you know, almost a full workout in before the game because they know they're not going to play a ton that night. And then the later bus comes over about 90 minutes before tip-off. Well, uh, urban legend had it that Tim Duncan was always taking the early bus, even once he was a bona fide Hall of Famer, and all-star, won championships, because his theory was, hey, you know, I still need to get better at at my craft. Just because I'm not a rookie doesn't mean I can't use extra work, so I'm just going to take the early bus over. And as soon as Popovich heard that – He just canceled the second bus. He said, we'll all go over, you know, three and a half hours early. Because if the best power forward to ever play the game, you know, can take the early bus, then the rest of us will take the early bus as well. And uh, whether those two stories are true or not, I love them. And they seem very congruent with who Pop is. Yeah. uh, In the NFL, they have
3: two buses. They have an early and a late bus. Uh, I always took the early bus because I hated being rushed. Like, I I like to be able to get there. I like to be able to make sure everything was fine. Like, I just, I'd like, dude, like, on game day, I never wanted to feel rushed. I always wanted to, like, have plenty of time to, like, get everything done. I never wanted to wait in line, make sure if I got my ankles taped, I needed at least three hours so that that loosened up. Because we either had to wear, uh, you had to tape your ankles, you got to wear, um, uh, what do you call it, Uh, ankle Ankle braces. braces. And I didn't wear ankle braces, so I had to get my ankles taped early enough to where it would loosen up uh, because I just hated ankle tape. Um, you know, and like, I wanted to make sure everything was perfect. And like, I just hated to feel rushed. And I just remember seeing dudes show up late and like fucking rushing to get in. And I'm like, God damn it. Like, what were you doing? Like, just fucking like sitting at the hotel, watching TV. I'm like, yeah. I could drive me crazy, man. I want to get there and make sure I got like plenty of time. And like, so believe me, I've, I've seen that for years and uh, it was always the, usually the good players are the ones that always show up early make sure everything's ready to go. Like there's no issues, and, uh, like, if the bus broke down, I'm not going to fucking get there late, which was always my fear. Like, what if, break, what if I took the late bus and it fucking got in an accident and I didn't get to the game? Right. So there's a bunch of shit to worry about.
4: Love it. Yeah. That's and all part of preparation. Plenty of downtime for
1: Adam Sandler CDs. <laughs> 100%.
3: Well, Will Shields would come over and sleep. That's scary motherfucker. I was telling <laughs> these guys, I played with this guy, Will Shields, would get fully dressed, everything, about an hour before we'd go out, and then he would lay down and take a fucking full nap. And sleep for about 45 minutes, and then we'd wake him up and be like, hey, we're going out, uh, we're, we're getting ready to go out. And he'd be like, oh, okay. he put on his helmet and go out and kill people. <laughs> Played uh, 14 years, uh, 264 continuous starts, never missed a play, 12 Pro Bowls, first ballot Hall of Famer, and the motherfucker was sleeping.
4: My goodness. It kind of goes back to what we're talking about with parenting. I mean, there is no truth. Every person has to figure out their recipe for performing at a high level, and he found his. I mean, I know that if I would have done that, I'd have been so groggy, I wouldn't have been worth anything during a game. But um, I do remember uh, one of the coaches I worked for, basically alluded to that fact and say, look, you know, we do have some team warm ups and we have a team pregame meal. There's a couple things we'll do as a team. But other than that, you're completely on your own to do what you need to do to get ready. And I just want to make sure that you do, you figure that out. Like you figure out your own recipe to do what you need to do and that you don't do anything that takes away from someone else. So if you have a teammate like Will that wants to sleep, then it's not okay for you to come in blasting loud rap music just because that's how you get ready. Cause now you're infringing on his ability to get ready. So either use headphones or go out in the parking lot, but you, you can't prevent another teammate from doing what they need to do. Be respectful of them. And uh, I, I just thought that was cool. This was a high school coach that was telling that to the players and, and it makes sense. Everybody's got their own thing to figure out, but man, I would have never guessed the 45 minute nap would be, dude would be it but good for him
3: no i i had my headphones on i'd like worked myself up into this like higher form of consciousness where i was like man i'm gonna rip some dude's arm arm, arm off and beat him to death with it <laughs> and like you know had done all this like visualization to the point where like i would like visualize myself like taking a bad set and like doing it wrong and then visualing myself like in reverse how to like do it properly and then like i had this whole fucking thing it just like it took me a long time to like build into the frenzy uh, and into the mindset to be able to go do that job. And then I look over and this dude's sleeping and I'm like God damn it. They, like it threw me off for like the first game. Like I remember that I just got to the Chiefs. We're playing in Mile High Stadium. We're just about to go out and like he totally fucking just like fucking sacked me. Like I saw him sleeping and it just was like <laughs> I come like, in the third quarter and they're like what's wrong? I'm like I can't believe Will Shields was fucking sleeping before the game. <laughs> they're like what? the fuck are you talking about I'm like dude he was sleeping <laughs> like it just totally threw me off and I remember at that point I was like god damn it he's in my head who would have thought sleeping before the fucking game
2: yeah, Al- Alan I mean. have you ever read the book Boys Amongst Men I have not, no. Ooh, it, it's awesome book. Highly recommend it. add
4: that to my list. Awesome. Yeah, man.
2: It's about the 10-year gap where NBA allowed high schoolers to skip college and go pro.
4: Mm. Oh, yeah. And so
2: it follows the stories of success. It follows the stories of failure of guys that we'd never even heard of that were drafted in the top yep. five. Um, and one of my favorites is Kwame Brown. So Michael mm. Jordan drafts him to the Wizards and is his one-on-one coach and just beats yep. this kid into a mental just flat balloon and he was not successful it shows like the mental game but do you think that jordan did that for his own ego or because he could he thought he could help the kid because i'll I'll tell you this like jordan wanted to not make a fool is the deciding factor of picking this kid number one
3: i know i'll tell you this i think with a guy like jordan his ego was so big that uh, um, he probably one on one this guy and beat him down to the point where like I like I need to prove something to myself. Jordan's a fucking interesting dude, yeah, man. That's why he came back. But the oh,
2: uh, yeah. <laughs> the the thing that really stuck out to me about the book was how that set, how this allowing high schoolers to jump into the NBA set the league and the sport back because the the logic was all right. We can take a risk and roll the dice. We're going to roll the dice on anyone we draft. why not might as well just right. take this high schooler. And then they started to just pick these kids way above where they should have gone just because Kevin Garnett had so much success. Well, wasn't Kobe that, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Kobe yeah. Kobe Kobe's Kobe in Kobe that. Kobe And so this kid is now the 12th man on the bench. And who's the first out? It's the older. It's the 30-plus-year-old guard. So they took the leaders, the guy that showed the professionals how to prepare for the game, how to be a professional athlete, how to take care of their bodies, and so on and so forth, those lessons were no longer passed down because yep. on paper, this guy's more of a uh, an upside per se. So it, but don't the, you think that goes theory is it set the sport back? Well, because the problem comes down to
3: when you have people that are making decisions about professional sports that have no concept of ever playing the game like the A.K. The Moneyball, where, you know, they're just yeah. looking at these, uh, you know, hey, these statistics and, the, you know, here and this and the, they don't understand the nuance of teamwork. Uh, or 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 understanding like that like and we saw that all the time, like they'd bring in these guys that would manage like you know the spreadsheets, and they were trying to manage the spreadsheets and bring this guy in and here, not realizing that like the team aspect is the meshing mm-hmm. like it's it's just like we always joke that like you know you have people making team decisions that have never fucking played on a team and have no concept that have never been to practice
2: well, that's the the rockets right now, and then their their g m never played the ball he was a, like a statistician. And he's trying. At first, it was all about the numbers, and now since then, he's he's uh, I guess developed all these al- algorithms that aren't public for way to find a team. And I mean, they're competing, but they haven't beat the Warriors dude, yet. Dude, that's the uh, yet. Uh, Dan Snyder.
3: Yeah, that's yet. the
2: that's the Dan Snyder approach
3: of like I'm just you know I'm a rich dude that's just going to go out and play fantasy football and try to get yep. the best players in, and they that's never the fucking lives. win. And then what does he do? You didn't make my vision come. Now I got to fire you. And like, it, it's fucking, it's insane. It's like the only thing that keeps changing or the only thing that stays constant in this changing environment is the fucking ownership. If you don't want to win games, like, it, like you've brought in all the different coaches, you've brought in players, you've done this, you've ch- changed everything other than ownership and you still can't fucking win the game. Yeah.
4: I, I yeah, I'm done. yeah, I'm here. In, I'm here in Redskins country, man. Uh, they will oh. never win as long as Dan Snyder's at the helm. That he's is the worst.
3: Yeah, of course. Yeah. But he's
4: he's such a narcissist that he can't see that he's the problem. He thinks the nine coaches we've had in 12 years is the problem. The, the six quarterbacks in eight years, that's their problem. It's like, no. And that's what if you really dig back. I mean, if you look back 10 years ago, you know, the Golden State Warriors were awful the I mean, Golden yeah. State Warriors no, they were at the joke. bottom of the NBA and they had new ownership. The the guy that owns them now took them over a year or two before they drafted Curry. Now, clearly they did well by drafting some good players. No one would ever argue talent, but what they did with the new ownership was they changed the entire mindset of the entire organization. Not even the the front facing on the court folks, but but ticket sales and everything else. That entire the entire Organization and culture got changed when they had new ownership and they created a fertile environment that gave them the potential to win. And then that attracts really good players that then want to stay there, be a part of it. I mean, it's people keep forgetting that they think that, well, they drafted Curry and then they had somebody else come in and they want. No, it started before that a year or two before with new ownership.
3: Well, they, they did that at the Redskins when they drafted RG3, which they oh. was a terrible draft pick. They shouldn't have done it. They went against it. That was uh, Dan Sander's pick. So much so that when they drafted him, they sent he sent his private jet to go pick him up, which uh, I'll just tell you this. As a professional athlete on a team, if all of a sudden ownership drafts a kid and they send his the personal private jet out there, that kid has zero fucking chops and credibility for the rest of that team. Like yeah. they'd be like, oh, geez. Which like sucks it sucks though,
4: because it's not RG's fault. No, like he's it, just it's a young not. kid that got a plane sent for him. And he, he was, he was set up to fail because that's the way Dan approached it. Unfortunately. In,
3: instead of like realizing like, hey, we're going to draft this kid. We have to treat him like everybody else. So he learns not only how to be part of the team, but the matriculation yes. of coming into it. And like, uh, you know, all the special treatment that he did for him completely fucked him. And, like, sets him up. And that dude, like I I said, dude, like, as long as that guy owns that team, they will never win. And uh, it's a sad realization. And it's a storied franchise, and they suck. And 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 the crazy
4: part is, if you look at what he bought them for and what he could sell them for, he would still make a killing. Like, he still won if he would just have the humility to sell the team and go do something else. I mean, it's just it's it's insane, but I don't think his his pride will ever let him do that. I well, think he really believes that he's going to end up winning at some point.
3: And- well, the, the one thing that kind of drove me a little crazy uh, and I, you know, whatever you want to say about the social commentary. But do you remember where they were suing them about the Redskins, uh, that it's a derogatory deal? The name. Yeah, uh, the name. And uh, when you guys asked me, I'm like, fucking change the name. Like, what does it matter? If anything, it shows that
2: you're a good guy instead of digging your heels in and being a fucking asshole about it. funny you say that. Uh, So my brother-in-law, huge Redskins fan, and I always, that's part of our conversation is catching up on the team. He lives in Reston, Virginia. But uh, story, rumor has it, I guess, on sports radio in Washington, which is awful, by the way. (laughs) All they do is talk to the Redskins, that he is now in a position to trade the Redskins name for a new football stadium closer to town Hmm. because it's way out in the middle of nowhere. Oh yeah, no, it's it's fucking out in the Uh, middle of nowhere. So that's...
3: I don't know. Like, like he could have done a lot of publicity and done some good stuff if he had been like, "Hey, I don't really understand it, but like, if this offends people and like, you know, like, yes. uh, like
4: I'm with you. 100%. We'll just pick
3: a new name." And what he could have done is he could have fucking washed the franchise of whatever fucking bad juju he's got on it, and could have actually Agreed. probably done a solid, got some better stuff in this because they were having a ton of their sponsorship fall away. And I'll be like, "Dude, why are yep. you guys married to a name?" He, he should have named it after <laughs> himself. The Danimals with the snipers <laughs> that would be fucking awesome the to watch the and then yeah. he's just got his face like a beaver or a badger
2: on there. Or no the same side profile like the current <laughs> indian native american <laughs> that's what i think
4: yeah he uh that's actually I'm pretty good you, i'm, I'm a, with you the perfect opportunity to just do what's right yeah get some, some some social currency going and and completely start the franchise over and hand the reins over to other people let them make the decisions um Yeah, but a guy like that will never, he he just, he he doesn't see, he doesn't, that's what narcissists, he doesn't see the the world with reality.
3: You know, uh, that's a pretty interesting, I mean, I've, I've dealt with some clinical fucking megalomaniacs, narcissists to the point where like you see them do things and it's almost like. Uh, like uh, like we were talking about, like the Emperor's New Clothes kind of deal where they surround themselves with sick defense and people that'll just can continue to push their narrative and what and then they get rid of people until they just have this echo chamber around them. And I guarantee he's done the exact same thing. I mean, I've been Absolutely. around people like that, and uh, you're kind of like, oh, fuck. Yeah, how do
1: you keep getting away with this
3: shit? Because no one's fucking pressing back, right? Yeah, because yes. yeah. you
4: surround yourself with people that say yes, and then anyone that doesn't won't be there, so... <laughs>
3: Well, we've sucked away you know, almost two hours of his life, so I feel like uh, kind of like in He's the seen. Princess Bride, which Luke hasn't seen. Nope, we've sucked away two hours of his life. Remember <laughs> that with the uh, the death machine where they like put the destruction. <laughs> You're not a Princess Bride fan, are you? No, I've seen. You guys
4: got to do I'm a either. separate movie. You guys got to get God. a movie podcast going. Well, so that's, that's what that's we've that's been saying.
3: saying. I to I was trying to. I had, I made a joke today that um, you know the uh, CEO of CrossFit took down all their social media. They had 10 million followers on Instagram. Yeah, 10,
4: oh, they took it down? why'd they
3: take it down i didn't know that uh dbd so the the story coming out through some back channels having worked with them was that uh glassman is not a fan of the mark zuckerberg empire and doesn't want to support uh instagram and facebook anymore that feels that it's become this oh nefarious deal and so they are just going to wipe themselves clean off of social media they're only going to have a twitter and they're going to try to drive all the media back to their website is what i'm hearing and uh uh, but yeah, the, uh, what the fuck was I? Oh, oh. so I, I was making a joke that, uh, if, if you're going to do that and you're tired of it, it's probably easier just to like sell everything off and let somebody else do it. And my joke was, um, to let somebody else be the dread pirate Roberts. And they're like, what do you mean? I've never heard that one before. I'm like, you guys haven't seen fucking princess bride. Like that is, uh, I'm not kidding you, Luke. It is so in your wheelhouse to see but that back movie. Then, I was like a bonafide moron and I would
1: watch predator back then. What are you fucking talking about right now, bro? (laughs) Burn band? (laughs) No, I was like Predator. Predator. If a Van Damme movie came out, which, as you know, they came out every three months. (laughs) Or Lethal Weapon. Whatever movie movie Viacom released. My dad figured out Viacom movies. It's like every month a Viacom movie would come out, and that's what we would watch. And it was like... Bloodsport, baby. So
3: I watched uh, The Princess Bride with my daughters, and uh, the part that, like... Uh, my daughter actually had nightmares. Jamie had nightmares about the RUSs, the rats of unusual size, when they went to the fire swamp. They're these huge fucking rats. Uh, I think it's hilarious seeing these, like, big, like, uh, um, fake, uh, like, robot rats fucking petrified them to death. And I'm like, really? <laughs> oh, wow. Like, Andre the Giant wasn't scared? Like, nothing? Oh, the fucking rats of unusual size, the RUSs.
1: <laughs> Interesting cool uh, all right well but, thank you yeah alan hey, dude thanks a lot let's hey, my so,
4: pleasure guys you guys are awesome i love what you do
1: yeah and we got your book here so listeners raise your game check it out alan stein uh man great talk great movie taste uh what else <laughs> do we got to say so once text once we get our movie podcast up and running Alan, uh, special guest special featuring alan stein jr he's, he's special he's, guest john uh, well Yeah, well it's, it's the french guy <laughs> and you have to speak in a french accent the whole time
4: <laughs> i love it <laughs> all
1: right take care alan I right, appreciate thank you guys you. later
4: all right thank bye. you
0: now it's time for you to empower your performance Allen Stein Jr. has packed all of those anecdotes and then some into his book, Raise Your Game, which is available at his website, allensteinjr.com. And you heard it, folks. The Power Athlete Symposium is back because it's never going away, ever. And if you missed it last year, that means that I have had a whole six months to forgive you to completely get over it. Um, But you can make it up to me and really make it up to yourself by heading to events.powerathletehq.com to check out what is up for 2019. We hope to see you there. And uh, if you wanted to check out that pre-show banter, as promised, all the Jerky Boys, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley discussion, here it is.
2: Question: Favorite James Bond movie of all time?
4: <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. I thought you were trying to figure out who is the best James Bond.
2: Sub question: uh, Who's I, the best James Bond? I always think it's Sean Connery.
3: I'm a, yeah. I'm a huge Sean Connery fan. Yeah, he's like the goat. Yeah, it's hard to argue yeah he was just so suave and the tuxedos were so on point like they just had like <laughs> velvety lapels like they just look cool
1: but the effects the special effects as you know for a lowbrow movie viewer like me i just need something shiny and exploding
3: so you're That's a big big pierce you Bar- brosman guy
1: oh yeah i pierce do like Brosnan. pierce yeah oh, <laughs> his, his
3: best work i think was in uh thomas, thomas, crown, thomas crown, affair. crown affair oh yeah Th- that was better than the james bond movies
2: it, it should have been a, honestly a plot of a James Dude. Bond movie,
1: just like Sean Connery's best work was *Entrapment*. In, entrapment, oh, you are what? correct. Catherine <laughs> Zeta-Jones, Zeta Fucking
3: <laughs> awful *Entrapment*. <laughs> oh, you thought that movie was awful? And I'll tell you why it's awful. Because the name didn't make any sense. And then she, when she tried to say to him that, like, when he, like, basically was blackmailing her, "This is Entrapment," and he's like, "Entrapment's what happens with like the the law enforcement, like." Crookstone Trap. It just, it was like they worked that piece in because they couldn't figure out how to make the name make fucking sense. They're like, well, you oh, you gotta put the title into the movie. Well, just no,
4: but she's an idiot. But they, like but they it, forced it too hard. Oh, yeah. It was
3: like, okay, it's called Entrapment for this reason, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> like they did like a focus group and they found, oh, Entrapment, a bunch of fucking dipshits. Like, you know, like when they interview people <laughs> on like TV and they're like, who was the second president of the United States? And people are like, Ronald Reagan? Entrapment. You know, like, Entrapment. Like, they're like, um, is Hawaii a state? And people are like, no, it's not. I mean, like, fuck, like, I'm just, I'm never, it's a state of mind. I'm man. never amazed with how stupid the public is.
2: <laughs> yeah. You're never amazed? Like, just watch, uh, what's that show? Man. Uh, and the answer is, any points on the board? Oh, family Jeopardy. feud, man. Family feud. That's how stupid America is because they survey these 100 people. Survey in says, of America. Ding.
1: How did you
4: not know that? That might be a sin. What? That's why George Carlin, my favorite George Carlin quote is just think of how stupid the average person is. And mathematically, half of all people are dumber than that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Good gracious. When Trump won as president, the or even as uh, the whole thing was going on, I I had like one huge uh, like weighing thing on me was the fact that George Carlin had already passed away. Yeah. Because I wanted George would, Carlin's commentary on the whole thing, and the other one was uh, John Stewart not doing the Daily Show. Like seeing the like between like with George Carlin and John Stewart, like you can kind of figure out like, hey, maybe I'm not crazy. And so like the fact that those two guys weren't there to give me some form of like, yeah, am I spinning out? No, no. George yeah. Carlin's dead on, and John Stewart. I, I love John Stewart. I think he's
4: great. Oh, and that and that format on that show, he was absolutely brilliant absolutely
3: and, brilliant and they've brought in other guys like uh who's a trevor noah who's uh, yeah uh, uh, I'm not, I'm, he
4: can't yeah. do what john does i mean he's yeah. he's okay but yeah. yeah john john was that genre
3: and the crazy part is is uh they didn't i uh they had writers but the majority of stuff was dictated by him like that was a lot of like oh, it, yeah. it just wasn't some like edgy writers that were coming I mean, that was literally john stewart's like his deal.
2: And, uh, yeah, I love to share. I listened to an interview with Trevor Noah. I, I never watched the daily show or any clips, but one cool thing that I appreciated that he does now is during like the book interviews or guest interviews, he just goes as long as he wants as he yeah. feels necessary to get and learn about the, the experience, the book, the person and the individual. And then he just leaves it up to comedy central to, to cut it down to fit the 30 minute window. But yep. then they put out his long form on the Facebooks. Oh. so, that I it like a cool thing that he does.
3: Yeah, no, he, he he's a good comic, and he's uh, uh oh yeah, he, he, yeah, he, he's
2: good. But it's just not John Stewart. Oh yeah, I agree. So, hmm. B- big daddy. I just think John Stewart, big daddy. Yeah,
1: they're not scrawny. They're nice. <laughs> <laughs> that
2: that that's movie a is classic movie. The, the Toronto World Series. <laughs> <The>
3: Toronto Hooters.
4: <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, that's it's a it's a good one. It's adam sandler's wild. done all right for himself <laughs> oh yeah yeah
3: he's got all that stuff on
4: netflix right oh yeah he's killing it i was just watching happy gilmore with my kids the other day i mean that's still a classic i mean hundred percent. he's worth 300 million dollars for nothing but dick and fart jokes and stupid voices and it's brilliant Dude,
3: for decades he was just on, what day is it he was just on saturday night live and uh yeah like it was like a they did like a spoof of like his family reunion yeah. And it was like all of his characters that he had ripped off and they were like, you making money on me. And he's like, what are you talking about? I totally made that stuff up. And It was all the characters. It was Did, good. Didn't you watch the Waterboy on our last trip? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, we were on Delta and as I'm scrolling through, I see the Waterboy's on and I'm like, man, I haven't watched that movie forever. You and can my, do it. My favorite, my favorite part is when his dad shows up at the end and he's like, it's Roberto. And he like, he's like looking up like, and he's like, like, he's like, uh, I had two loves. What was it? It was a big city living in a voodoo woman named Phyllis. Like, <laughs> like I'm like writing down these lines because people are like, so what are you into? I'm like, ah, big city living in a voodoo woman named Phyllis. <laughs> and see if anybody picks that one up. So awesome. Yeah, that's that's an obscure I mean, he's, one. he's
4: a living masterclass on how to build wealth because not only was he getting, you know, 15, 20 million to star in the movies, he's got his own production company. That's where all his value comes from. So, I mean, it's very. I think he only did one or two movies until he started that. What's he call it? Happy Madison. Happy yeah, Madison. Yeah. 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 And now he does all of them himself. That's where he makes most of his money. So when you, you look at his net worth and you start looking at guys comparable like Will Ferrell or some of the others, I mean, he, he crushes them because of that. It's pretty impressive.
3: No, he's, he's a sharp dude, man. And uh, I, I still to this day, uh, his comedy CDs. I mean, I got oh, I, I guess oh, I had them yeah, on cassettes. Yeah. Like dude, like the, the talking goat. And Toby Willie. Like I still be <laughs> um, like, I'm coming out of the booth. Doing that whole thing, Uh, he's like dollar twenty five, Willie. Isn't the same amount of money your
2: mother charged for a blowjob? And he's like, oh, I have another one, you
3: lush! And he's like yelling at him, and he's like,
2: ah, good to see you, Monsignor. (laughs) Yeah, my favorite was, and now the severe beating. Of a bus driver.
4: Yeah.
3: Or <laughs> just two minutes of. No, wasn't
2: it like a severe
3: beating of a high school oh, janitor? Yeah. My, my, just like various. All day
4: long. And, and then, then he's
3: the, like, and then a science teacher. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's like, uh, plutonium. Plutonium. <laughs> <"Petonium."
2: laughs> just say it. Yes. I just mopped there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, uh, dude. Eating wholesale ass. Uh, is that where you got that uh, line?
3: Probably. The other one I, uh, is, you remember when it's like the nighttime is the right time? And he's like, man, you, you had oh, to yeah. kill your father. He's like, yeah, he was into the oh, sun. Remember that whole thing? He's like, but you're going to get a fucking air. <laughs>
4: dude,
3: uh, That's right. I used to listen to that on the bus ride to the game and I have told these guys a story I like had my headphones on and like dude sitting across from me like looks over he's like what are you listening to it's some pretty serious shit and I'm like yeah. what and <laughs> no. I like, listen to him he's like what are you listening to and I hand him the headphones and he's like expecting like fucking Slayer Raining Blood or like something oh, like yeah. death metal and he's like you're listening to Adam Sandler's comedy Pe- CD? People like, working
2: out or people having sex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, first of all, you
3: guys are taking this stuff way too seriously. So you gotta have a sense of humor about this. For sure. You know, that's uh, uh that's good. I'm legendary. Right. Oh, it's good. Oh, are we ready? <laughs> So now what are we going to talk about?
4: That's We just added tremendous value to all the listeners there. <laughs> well, well wait, anyone that, nice. that hasn't listened to Adam Sandler's, we're all going to laugh at you. Now they'll all go by. you will see a nice resurgence
1: in uh, royalties. Honestly, that should be our loyal listener homework. That should be our, our
3: intro.
4: <laughs>
2: They're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. <laughs> oh, Fatty McGee. <laughs> <laughs> would just I all would love back. to know this thought
4: process. that He, w- he must have been high and just thought, you know what? I'm going to do a six-minute skit on a talking goat, and I'm going to get some of my friends to to come in and it's going to be hilarious and who yeah. uh, would ever think that that would be so funny but it's genius he uh he was high
3: as shit because i remember he oh, had like yeah. a live one that was i want to say it was like on hbo or something like he had a live deal and he gets up there and as he's playing he's playing the uh like the hanukkah song or like was one of his songs oh, and all yeah. the people yeah. start clapping and he's like he just stops he's like I can't keep my, like, I can't, like, I can't concentrate to play the song when you're clapping. And, like, he so was good. so fucking high. Like, he just probably got up there, and he's like, I'm just going to get
1: baked and just do the goat. Dude, his Lunch Lady skit with Farley, mm-hmm. the, oh. the Sloppy Joe, <laughs> that, like, that is legendary <laughs> YouTube action. Like, that one I is just. I don't know how
4: anyone could do a skit with Farley and not break character and laugh. <laughs> I mean, that dude was just off the charts.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, uh, he 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 did that whole uh, kind of homage to Farley. Uh, tearjerker man. Oh, dude, man. well it uh, it was oh, a yeah. tearjerker and as you're watching it, they're having the clips up of Farley and as I'm watching them I'm like in tears at the one where it's him versus Swayze dancing. Oh God! It's probably, oh, it's yeah, probably his
4: Dales. That's top five all time. And, and uh, the
3: best is Swayze's all nervous. He's like, "Man, you were way better than me." And he's like, "And, and he's his like, his name ah. was
4: Barney." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude,
3: it's, it's like just going head to head with him, and I'm like, "Dude, partly like, uh, yeah, like unbelievable." So uh, to tell you another story, I had just recently forgotten. I uh, <laughs> one of the girls that I went to school with, who graduated a year ahead of me, she got a job as a uh, as a writer on um, for like Comedy Central or something in oh, Hollywood, wow. and we got in, and this is I think like a couple years I was in my second year in the NFL and we got invited to her Christmas party where all these celebrities showed up and Adam Sandler was there and like uh, with David Spade and this is right after Chris Farley had passed away uh, and it was pretty uh, kind of awkward but um, yeah. we did meet uh, John Stamos that was kind of neat mm-hmm. and I went over yeah. and told him I'm like dude Full House huge show growing up and he was like oh thanks have you met my hot supermodel wife and i'm like (laughs) and that was rebecca romaine stamos and we were like it sure was yeah and she like came over (laughs) and i was like oh hey and she's like oh like oh like they're all super friendly turns out she's from berkeley and he was like the nicest dude in the world and um i tried to smart ass him and the dude totally turned it around on me so at that point i was like fuck you he was nicest dude ever so Stamos,
4: cool yeah he was super fucking cool Mm-hmm. I would never a, think that. I feel like he'd be a prick, but that's pretty cool.
3: Yeah. He, uh, he, he you know, and I asked him, I'm like, yeah, like on the show, he's like, yeah, we had a great time. He said, you know, the, really, the only, uh, uh, variable on it was, um, who was the dad? Danny Saget Tanner. Bob Saget oh, yeah Bob Saget he's like Bob Saget with the loose cannon on the whole show and I'm yeah. like really he's, a, he's a,
1: like no, yeah it's like no <laughs> fucking
4: well yeah and Danny like, Tanner right and Mr. Life Lessons right. oh, I know no. I
3: know but like I, well like at the
4: no time one knew and, that. he kept that under wraps that he was a total pig dirtball I, oh, I mean that's pretty impressive he was no like hookers
3: and cocaine that. and crazy oh, shit yeah. like he'd like uh you know and so Stamos is like yeah we had a you know couple problems because he was call, you know bringing in hookers and drugs into his trailer and we got these kids on set and they got to like make sure there's like you know teachers and police because child services and he's running in hooker like i was like really before the internet man yeah yeah, this Double been, yeah this and he went been.
4: from full house to hosting america's funniest videos like he was america's dad and then all yeah. of a sudden we all find out that he was a uh,
3: degenerate yeah, scumbag 100%. of the highest order
4: just normal yeah. guy yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was hilarious. Oh,
3: and and then, but then, you know what? He kind of owned it. And then all of a sudden, yeah. he's in, oh, yeah. like, Dave uh, He was on Dave Entourage. Ch- and, yeah, but he he yep. was in Dave Chappelle, remember, when he right. was in the deal? And right. he's like, you ever suck dick for weed? Yeah. And he's like, no. <laughs> and
2: he's like, I've sucked dick for coke. I mean, he kind of ran with it. Oh, yeah, he did. He, in Entourage, Bob Sager was his neighbor, and Bob Sager yep. was Bob playing Bob well, Sager. <laughs> right. Degenerate. It was awesome.
1: Yeah. And, then like, that's his comedy shtick right now, because his full house audience, you know, grew up with him as this yeah this paragon father and now he's like this just awesome a fuck, yeah dirt bag uh and they, like they love the contrast and he was talking about it on a podcast couldn't couldn't tell you well maybe rogan i don't
3: know it's like when uh i told you we were in vegas and we're hanging out with charles barkley and his running partner was mr belding from saved by the bell mm-hmm. yeah and that's they were, insane uh, I, I i like i'm I'm sitting there with Charles and like, you know, we had known him in Philly and we're like, hey, and he's like, oh, here's my boy. And I'm like, Mr. B. And the crazy part is he went by Mr. B. I don't even remember his fucking name. Yeah. And like all these chicks are coming over and he's over there just gro- I'm like, dude Mr. The, Belding from Saint by the Bell is a fucking
1: scumbag? The fame game, man. I had a guy, <laughs> a guy who is a child star. I know who's in a Disney movie, right? Oh yeah! It just oh, yeah, yeah. cleans house. Just cleans house whenever I've... Hun- I've only hung with him a handful of times, but he's just like, these these girls, these beautiful girls come up to him and remember him as a character and it's he's just fish in a barrel, man. Fish in a barrel. That's it's incredible. Like, fame game is real. And I just keep thinking like,
2: what a dirt bag. Even for like a B movie. A yeah. A B movie. Yeah. For- but it
1: replays every year. What movie oh, like is a it? A Christmas movie? Yeah. Holiday. What movie is it? A oh, Christmas story? Yeah. We'll just go with that. <laughs> oh. I don't feel comfortable saying it out loud
3: no. Or on the air. It's all right. I just outed Mr. Belting. It's Lord of the Rings. Back. It's, uh, what's that guy's name? Frodo
1: Baggins. Yeah. Samwise. Samwise. Samwise it's Rudy. <laughs> Rudy's picking up all the dudes. <laughs> That's awesome. Really? He was a hero. He had to be here to dudes. Chicks are no picking man. up Rudy. And Sino Man. Uh huh. Polly Shore. Yeah. Also cleans house. Oh, yeah. I know. Are you from serious? Experience.
3: Oh, yeah. Polly oh, Shore. I would never get that one.
1: I met, we went to an Aerosmith show, John, and yeah. uh, he was like two rows up, and you know you brought like a bunch of scrubs, me, and, that my now wife, and then Paulie Shore, and up, my wife, like, ten supermodels. But your wife's a babe, but yeah, um, <laughs> no, I mean, but we're scrubs, yeah, exactly. So it's but uh, Paulie
3: Shore had like ten supermodels in his little thing at the Hollywood and at the Hollywood Bowl, Hollywood Bowl yeah. And we were like, is that fucking poly Shore with all those chicks? <laughs> like, we're going to try not to watch. We're like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and the uh, uh, the interesting part was then Johnny Depp got on stage, and my buddy is Johnny Depp's security guy, and I was like, oh, shit, maybe Charles is here. Maybe we can go meet Johnny. No, that didn't fucking work. Mm-hmm. Oh. I was like, that ain't going to happen. That was pre-skeleton Johnny Depp, though. You know, I think yeah. he's,
1: like, he's turning into a skeleton re- as of recent. Oh, he's got something going
3: on. He, he's, you think he... Uh, uh, he was pretty high. I mean, that was like the whole Hollywood vampire, like uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. When mm-hmm. it was like oh, jet. yeah. Yeah, pretty, pretty well. Yeah, but that was that Aerosmith. He came out and played with It was cool.
0: On, drop on, drop on. Well, guys, until we can start our Power Athlete Radio movie review slash entertainment slash TMZ podcast, you're just going to have to settle for the premiere podcast in strength and conditioning. <laughs> until next time. Bye. So so bright.